Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 963 with Tanner Agar. I spend more time with the people in this building than I spend with my family, than I spend with my partner. Why would I not want to be as diligent in choosing these people than I would be choosing my life partner? That doesn't make sense. Because if you don't envision a long-term productive relationship with people that are in your company, they shouldn't be in your company. Why would I spend my time investing in people I don't see as long-term players in our organization? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurant in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue or connecting with diners more? Maybe you want to increase sales without physically expanding your brick and mortar. If this is all true, then you are looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest owner and creative director of Rye Restaurant, Apothecary, and Barley by Rye. Tanner Agar. Tanner, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. It feels great to be here with you. Dude, I'm psyched for this opportunity. Like you just like landed on my radar, like literally like the day or two before coming out here. I usually don't take last minute interviews like this, but just looking into your story, looking at what you guys built here, uh, looking at the the acknowledgement you're getting from your community. I, I was like, this could be a great opportunity. We just kept digging. We we're like, we got to make this happen. So I couldn't be more excited to share your story, to discover how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Absolutely. Um, if I can, I'll give you two. Please. One is kind of just for my personal life. And uh, it's from Diane Ackerman, who's a poet, says, I don't want to get to the end of my life and find that I live just the length of it. I want to have lived the width of it as well. So why does that resonate with you? Dive into how that pulls out your the strings of your heart. So I try to live as much of my life as I possibly can and just jam in everything that I can, which means I'm tired a lot of the time. Yeah. But it's a different type of tired when you've been doing something that you love, when you're with people that you love. Mm. I've been really fortunate 
I've worked in six different countries in three different languages. I've been to, I think, like 32 different countries. So I get to travel a lot. I get to spend a lot of time with people. I'm just not a person who's at home, on the couch, watching TV. I don't actually watch TV at all. Do you, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 30. 30. I, mean, yeah. I was looking at your hair. I'm like, I don't see any grays. <laughs> I'm looking at the beard. I was like, I don't see any grays in there. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot to accomplish. And I mean, you started cooking, from what I can understand, age 15. Yeah. You were working in the industry at Professionally. 14. Yeah, professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 15 years later, like you said, six different countries you've worked in. You said over 32 countries you've been in. Yeah. You've learned three. I mean, that's just impressive, man. So is it just how, like, what do you think it is about you that is like this, that is making you just kind of get all this life experience so fast? I think one, you know, work was always very important to my parents. Uh, My dad moved to America so he could pursue his career. And my mom was an advertising executive for a long time. And so, you know, just the idea of I've got to work hard and I'm looking at my parents and setbacks they're facing in their career. I said, I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to set my own destiny, even though I know that this is what the cost is going to be. And it was a little harder than I anticipated uh, when, you know, you're 15, but I always wanted to define my own life and go after it because otherwise no one's going to do it for you. And so I'm just fortunate to have parents who were supportive and kind of taught me that. And then the more I work, the better things always seem to get for me. Mm. You know, David Chang talks about the idea of I work hard and it's the gravity that keeps me on the earth. Whereas I feel that hard work is also gravity, but to me, it's more like the theory of relativity. The harder I work, the more people and opportunities find me. Just like you were saying, you don't normally take these last minute interviews, but you found out about us and then, and here we are. Why did this happen? Because our team is doing hard work. You found about that hard work and you wanted to discuss it. And not just hard work, but good work. For sure. And I think that's a big part that really resonated with my heart. My heart. We'll get into that because that comes later in your story about how you're taking care of your employees. I also love you have four business partners. Yeah, right? I do. And, I, and maybe there's more that I don't know about, but there's four at least public business partners. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll kind of put that on the shelf. But um, I mean, half, this, half the battle in this industry, in my opinion, is, is just doing the work and being willing to go through the obstacle, right? Well, 100%. And, yeah. you know, it was Hemingway who said, don't confuse action for progress or it's something like that. But basically, like you were saying, you still do have to do good work. And yeah. But I know the more we put in, the more I get out of it. This this is a lifestyle, but it's given me everything in my life I love. Yeah. You kind of reminded me. I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed Joe Rogan, like, super fan. I, I just love his work. I, I think I know he catches a lot of flack, but I really, like, to, to be able to interview people and to have, he did, I think he has such an open mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and he like, often says that, you know, like, he's like, I just, he's like, people are always saying you work so much, you work so much, but he's like, I don't work a day in my life because the things that I do are the, the things that I love to do. And I, I kind of been picking that up from you, too. Because it sounds like you truly love this industry. When you said something else that's really important, too, is like you love the people you work with. Why is that <clears throat> such a, an important part of uh, the recipe to your success? Oh, it's everything. I mean, the my success really is the restaurant success, right? And the restaurant success has, in some ways, less to do with me every day. The more I do my job, the farther I come from the guests. In some ways, my ability to actually cook isn't really relevant anymore. Sure. I I lead the creative teams and I'm in the kitchen. You saw me when we were setting up, we're working on a fermented broccoli seed uh, presentation we're doing right now. And it's interesting because I don't need to do that. What I need to do is manage the people because 
I've always felt that if I spend enough time worrying about my team, I won't have to worry about my guests. And those will be the people they're building the relationships with because the relationships are what matters in the business. Mm. How people feel when they're with you is kind of the only thing that does matter because you can go get food anywhere. Yeah. You can't get this feeling from anyone else. Yeah. And I love that you put that emphasis on relationships. You, if you look at the, just what is business, right? The, we, we, the clues are there. Like we call it a company. What else do we call a company? The people that we hang out with, right? We're having company over it. And For the, sure. it's just, it, it, I, th- I really do think it's that simple. It's like, who do you choose to make your company? Who do you choose to hang, t- hang out with and spend time with and be as intentional you, as you are in your personal life with your company, as you are in your business life with the people you surround yourself with, the, the company you keep, right? For Relationships. sure. Relationships. More people so. People you work with and your guests because that's company, you know? 100%. They're your guests. They're company. They're literally having company. I spend more time with the people in this building than I spend with my family, mm. than I spend with my partner. Why would I not want to be as diligent in choosing these people than I would be choosing my life partner. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't make sense because if you don't if you don't envision a long term productive relationship with people that are in your company, they shouldn't be in your company. Why Why would I spend my time investing in people I don't see as long term players in our organization? Yeah, yeah. So back to your story. Um, fourteen. Let's just start. Like, I don't want to spend the, like the whole interview like in your come up, but I do want to sure. get an idea of how you got here and maybe spotlight some key mentors and key lessons along the way. So, when did you know this was your path? When did you know like this is what I want to do? I read How to Run a Restaurant for Dummies when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> nice. Like, how old are you in eighth grade? Uh, I guess that would be what like thirteen. Like thirteen. Maybe I was thirteen. Fourteen. So you knew early. What was it yeah. that that made you fall in love? I just always wanted to cook. Mm. You know, when I was born, I was my mom's only kid. And then when she had my brother, all of a sudden, I didn't get 100% of her attention anymore, which meant I had to learn how to make myself a snack. I had to do this. And then I also found that really rewarding. Mm. There's something very cool about cooking for people. I created created my first recipe when I was in like first grade. I made an instant chocolate pudding and expired chili powder pie. <laughs> I was incredibly proud of it. It was horrible, I'm sure. (laughs) But, you know, there was just something cool about like, oh, I saw this thing on TV and then I made it because, you know, this was pre-internet. Like you couldn't just Google how to do that. Yeah. And so that was really cool to create something. And I still love the process of cooking and making something for somebody and imagining something and bringing it forth into the world. And food is a way that, it's the only art form someone ingests. Mm. And to me, there's something really cool about someone trusting you that much with who they are. Because what you eat in many ways is who you are. And to be able to share that with people is just a very special experience that nothing else I've ever done can compare to. You, you said something kind of interesting. I'm just kind of curious. You said in the food you eat is in many ways who you are and what you are. And that seems kind of obvious, but I'm kind of curious to see what, like what, what are the many ways that you're thinking of just to see if, it, there, if there's more to that than what seems to be obvious. Oh, I mean, it's what you choose to eat is has so many factors. Why do you like this? Why do I like wild rice? Because my mom's from Minnesota mm-hmm. and she used to cook it for us when we were sick. She'd make chicken and wild rice soup. So there's a connection point to wild rice. That's why wild rice is on our menu because I brought it in because I said, this is an ingredient I'm excited about. I want to serve it. And 
you can kind of see that. It's obvious, right? You go to a culture, you see different foods, that's what they eat that represents those people. But really when you dig in, anybody who eats with intentionality, you're choosing to eat those, right? Especially when you go to a restaurant because you don't, nobody has to go to a restaurant. You can pick up food easily at a grocery store, but when you're choosing to engage in someone's culture, whether you're cooking for them, whether you're eating their food, you just get to touch who that person really is, their memories, their philosophies, why they choose to do something is probably my favorite thing about eating at other people's restaurants. Yes, I love to cook, but I make dinner reservations before I buy plane tickets wow. to make sure I don't miss out on where I wanted to eat. Yeah. But if you look, like, I love that statement, not only everything you shared, but also like literally what you put into your body, what you are what you eat, right? As far oh, as health yeah. wise, and that's a big part of it. But also like, <clears throat> like to kind of build off of what you're saying, if you go back 10,000 years plus, like food literally formed cultures. Like we came together to, to live in civilization because of food, to live in the numbers we live in today, that all that all stemmed, that all hinged around food, arguably drugs and alcohol too. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> one of the theories for how civilization was created was beer. Yeah, and yeah, go into that if you well, want. Well, yeah, sure. Um, I love talking about food, so we can do that the whole it, time. It's, it's yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, I actually had the author of Drunk on the show. Oh, we, cool. I don't know. Are you familiar with that book? Yeah, but I did, I guess I missed that episode. <clears throat> Edward Slingerland. Great episode. And the reason, one of the big reasons why I had him on the show is because I think the, our relationship with alcohol is really twisted from what it, how it started, right? We, sure. Like alcohol is arguably the reason why we are where we are today. Sure. Not only because we came together to pull resources to be able to create it, but it gave us the ability to coexist in mass numbers of people because we were never originally meant to have that many people around us. So we there's a lot of social anxiety associated with that. So with alcohol and drugs, it turns down that frontal lobe and it makes you less anxious and it makes you able to coexist with more people. And then furthermore, if you come together and you have like similar beliefs culture, that culture lets you agree. Now, now we, we're the same. We agree on what things are and the way things should be. But it all stemmed from food and alcohol and Maybe some other drugs, but I mean, I think it's yeah. important. What we put into our body literally affects so much. We, we just overlook it, you know? Absolutely. There's, I think it's Faulkner who said civilization begins with distillation, which I hadn't thought of in light of what you're saying right now and that, yeah, we kind of needed the alcohol to get along with each other. But I mean, I think pretty much anybody coming out of the holidays would agree with that. Yeah. There's a lot of alcohol buying that goes on in the month of December. Yeah. For sure, man. Uh, I'm, we're going to a rabbit hole. I'm loving, I'm loving the conversation, so I'm letting it happen. But back to your story. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so you fall in love with the industry. Um, I know at, four, at 14, you first started working professionally, right? Mm-hmm. What 15. Was your, 15. So what was your first job? Uh, pizza Segway Delivery. Okay. So that was right when the Segway had come out. Did you need a license um, for that, huh? No, you didn't need a driver's <laughs> license because you could drive them on the sidewalk at the time. Nice. The city of Chicago did outlaw that pretty quickly. So our I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our Segway business got shut down, but that was kind of great because I used that as a way to get into this restaurant, and then I started making wood fire pizza okay. uh, by hand in an open kitchen. So that was kind of a harsh awakening to, you know, I didn't I didn't start peeling potatoes, or I had a lot of dish shifts that would come, but yeah, I mean, I started immediately. It's Friday night. You don't make pizza fast enough. This is an Italian restaurant, and that was a very interesting way to get started. Yeah. So when did you first leave the country to go pursue this career in other places? When, when did that happen? 
yeah, the first place I ever worked out of the country was Canada. Okay. Uh, where I worked and then was Spain. I took okay. a semester where I studied abroad in Spain. I'm not sure how hard I studied, but I spent my time. I actually found a Michelin starred chef there in Spain and I worked in his restaurant. And how old were you when you went to Canada? I was probably 19 when I was in Canada okay. and then 20 when I was in Spain. Okay. So, um, so 15 to 19 working at this pizza place. Yeah. So I was working there. Um, I ended up working at another restaurant too, but yeah, all based in Chicago. Okay. Just kind of trying to get started. Uh, and just, it's funny. I applied to 27 restaurants the day after I turned 15 and all of them said no, including a Chinese place, which told me I couldn't work there cause I wasn't Chinese. That's what they actually said. So that was interesting. No comment. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I applied to all these restaurants. I begged to get jobs at places for free and I couldn't get anything. So the pizza place was really fantastic because it was the first place where I could be a real chef. Man of times changed, huh? Yeah. Well, I think about that. You know, when I talk to the teams of, like, I would have been so happy to be, have been offered minimum wage at a different time. And this is a better environment. You know, people, I don't, we don't have people work here for free. Yeah. It's, it's but, kind of, I love that the youngest generation that exists brought this industry to its knees and forced it to change. There's some, sure. I mean, at, right now we're in it, so it's so painful that we can't see it. But I think 10 years from now, when we look back at this time and the transformation that this period has, is going to have long-term in our industry, I think it's super, I, I don't, we're so close to, we can't see it as a positive thing yet. But when we reflect back at this time, I think it's going to be a positive time because it's forcing the industry to, to take care of its people and to attract people to it. I think that is going to enable different voices to finally get into the restaurant business. And we're going to see the proliferation of better concepts, more interesting things, just a more inventive and expansive food scene yeah. because more people can now be a part of it. Yeah. I think we're going to unpackage that a lot more when we're talking about what are you doing here at Rye and sure. Apothecary. Did I say right that time? Apothecary. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, so, so, you're working all throughout Chicago. You go to Canada. You're there for a year. You go to Spain. You're there for about a year, right? Or longer? Uh, shorter. I just spent only a semester okay. there. But Where yeah. else did you go? I um, I ended up doing a stint in France okay. between Paris and Marseille, which was really wonderful. Okay. Spent some time working in Tanzania. Okay. Tanzania. And then also New Zealand. Okay. New Zealand. Okay. So... Um, this is kind of good. So you, you dropped it out there. Were you about a year or two at each one of these locations? I mean, you opened this in 2018. You're 30 now. So right. that's five years. So this, you're 25 when you opened. So I basically was doing more or less six month stints okay. in those different places Got it. Um, for the sake of ease. Uh, and you consulted at some point too, right? Yeah. So the first company I started when I was still in college was a consulting company. And because it, it occurred to me that some of the restaurants I was working at were not especially well run. Like the food was good, but the business was just kind of a mess. And interesting, you know, we were talking about your story and yeah. why you were inspired to start the podcast. Yeah. That's why I was really excited to be a guest was that there are so many people whose talent is not running a business. And a lot of people don't understand that it's called the restaurant business. Mm. And if you can't figure out a way to keep yourself sustainably open, you have to close. Yeah. And that's for anyone. I mean, no one's closing because they're saying they can't figure it out. So we, did you go... Well, I mean, 
I think they just finally figured out that there's easier ways. You like if you're in Noma, how much friggin' press do you have, right? Like right. you're putting all this energy into serving guests, where you've done the work, and there's just a path of a. a a path of least resistance that's so obvious for them to take sure. to, to take a creative path and they're going to get the media like they're probably making money on media they're making better money there's way better margins in media trust me i know like like <laughs> it's a it's for them it seems like an obvious path you know right. so i don't i can't blame them for taking uh you know and they, they they're such creatives you know that's what they want to do so who can blame them you know what i'm saying but anyway back to your story um so 19 years old is when you're in Canada. Did you go to school in Canada? Is that No, I went to school uh, here in Fort okay. Worth. Okay. So I live in Dallas now. But yeah, I went to school here. So I went up there and just spent some time. My parents had moved up there. So it was kind of easy. I'm also a citizen of Canada and the US. So your dad moved to America to pursue his career. When you said exactly. Okay. And so that made it really easy to just go up to Canada, kind of get some different experience. I worked for a phenomenal chef up there. Probably the most difficult kitchen I ever worked in actually was in Canada. But... The most difficult times are when you're also learning the most. Mm. What made it so difficult? I was there from 2.30 p.m. till 1 a.m. every single day. And I do mean every single day. There was a month where I think I had two days off for the whole month. Wow. Which, you know, is a lot when you're 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's a lot for anybody, but especially when you're 19. And we, I don't think there was anyone in the city of Toronto doing higher-end food for more people. Sure, there were fussier restaurants or higher-end restaurants, however you want to look at them, and there were larger footprints, but we had very exacting standards on some very technically complex work. What was this restaurant? What kind of what, Describe the restaurant you're working uh, at. So it's called One, okay. and it's still in Toronto, and it's a phenomenal restaurant, but it was the restaurant in the number one hotel in Toronto, and the Four Seasons, which was really its only competitor, was closed while I worked there. Wow. So that meant over the course of my stint there, it was Robert De Niro, Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, LMFAO, John Cougar Mellencamp, Meg Ryan. Like, I mean, it was... No Drake? Um, that's his hometown. <laughs> okay, so that's funny you ask. Um, I've cooked for Drake many times. Oh, see? I he lives in that hotel. Oh, interesting. And uh, this is the first time I'm publicly telling the story. Drake loves smoked hummus and crudite, which I know because do you know what was not on the menu at that restaurant? Smoked hummus and crudite? 100% no. (laughs) And so probably two times a week in the middle of all of my other just crushing amounts of prep, because our kitchen was 114 degrees. I measured it one day because I was curious. I have to drop everything so I can cook for Mr. Drake. That's what they called him. And that really upset me. So if Drake is listening... um, please don't come to the restaurant. <laughs> I don't want to cook for you. Okay. You've had plenty of opportunities to do that, right? Yeah. So, so one was, you say it's the most difficult time. The hours you're pulling 2.30 p.m. to 1 a.m., seven days a week, uh, cooking for people that have very high standards, that have a lot of money, and they can they can you know demand those standards because they're sure. paying for it, right? So um, what about the people you were working for? Uh, what, you said this is where you grew the most. So was there a key yeah. mentor you had? Uh, so yeah, I had a chef there. His name's Matt, and he was just very intense. And it was really interesting to see. It's really easy to look at the flashy part of chefs, or you know, on Instagram where everybody's smiling because they're cooking at some fancy event. But to really feel what it was like to have the pressure of someone who feels their entire reputation is riding on the performance of this service 
just breathing down your neck regularly? Because it really says that it really forces you to ask that question: Do I actually want to be? Do I actually want to go for three Michelin stars? You know, I have thoughts on Michelin stars and awards in sure. general. I think it's kind of an issue with our industry because we put so much emphasis on the notoriety, the awards at, at the expense of so much, like mental health and just family relations like we sacrifice so much and at the end of the day from what i've been able to gather in my nearly 1000 episodes that when you get that shit nothing really changes but you but the thing that changes is you recognize that you've sacrificed so much for it for what you know and it's it's a weird balance what are your what's going through your mind as i say this well just say you know it's interesting if the way you get to that point is you become a workaholic well then the only way for you to hit the rock bottom is to succeed, right? Uh, David Chang, again, he talked about that, actually. Um, Say that one more time. That, I just want to make sure we picked up what you said. If you're a workaholic, the rock bottom for you to hit and turn your life around is when you've become the most successful you can possibly be. What is, what, what was he, what, what's the translation there? What's he saying? I just mean, just like you said. So you get, you want three Michelin stars your whole life. You sacrifice everything for it. You know, classic chef, right? You're divorced. You don't talk to your family. You're you're probably addicted to something other than work, but definitely work. And if you get your third star, it's like when you know you turn thirty or forty, and you go, "It's the same as it was yesterday." It's, well, it's not the a fear big deal. of never getting it, and then you sure. get it, and then it's the fear of not keeping it. Oh, absolutely. So you just have this monkey in your back. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe this isn't the case for everybody, but it seems to be a common narrative to what happens when you I get think to that level. I think so much of the time, if the way that you want to get there is to internalize that pressure and make it all about yourself, you are going to get there, hopefully, but you're going to look around and find yourself very lonely because there's no one there to share it with. And you will burn yourself out for the opportunity to be lonely, which is not something I'm interested in. You know, I'm glad that I've got partners. I'm glad that I've got all these people who run the restaurant with us every day, who make it possible for us. Because that's the only way I think we can get there, first of all. And that's the only way I would want to get there. Yeah. The journey, you can go so much further together. And the, not only can you go further, but the ride's going to be way better. You know? For sure. Yeah. When Tales of the Cocktail put us on the list for Best New Cocktail Bar in America, I was so ecstatic to get to work and see all the people at Apothecary who actually made that possible. And that was the most fun part to me. It was fun to go to Tales and celebrate with my team. And yeah, I just, I think the lone wolf chef thing has to stop because it's not sustainable and it's lonely. And I think the media then also has to take up the mantle of understanding that these are teams because no restaurant runs in isolation this restaurant is not good because I am a genius. I'm not actually. And a lot of people make it possible. We're sitting here. We have guests. We're full. Mm. And I have the time to sit with you because my team is great. Yeah. And that team is then what's also going to support me where I can get out a little early to catch a movie. Yeah, yeah. I can go on vacation. Yeah. And if you don't find a way to pass some of that off to the team and grow that environment... You will close. And you, just the fact that you're 30 years old, you've been in business for five years, you know, like, and that you realize this, it takes a lot of people <clears throat> much longer. 
in their career, like as an owner and just through their life to, to make that connection and, and to realize that. And I think, I think it's because of resources like this, not just this, but there's so sure. many resources out there today where people are sharing information, where we're, we're, we're empowering each other, you know, and it's, it's a very exciting time. The fact that you have figured this out and you've cracked that code and you're able to do what you're doing at this stage in your career is just really impressive, man. I hope you recognize that. So wh- who was the key mentor back in like your time in Toronto? Who, who was the person who you think most influenced who you are today as a restaurateur? Where did you learn these lessons? You know, I would say because I did some shorter stints, you know, I've got, I had some great mentors actually from college who were very business-minded people and have helped me understand the business side of the restaurant. What did you go to school for? Uh, entrepreneurial management and Spanish. And how old were you? Did you go straight to college out of, or did you go yeah. late, later in life? No, so I you went- you were 19 when you were in Toronto, right? Right. So um, I did that over the break from oh, school. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, but so I went there. And I studied business and then I cooked all night. So I went to school full time and I kept a job as a cook full time. So you were take, you're studying in Dallas mm-hmm. and in Toronto? No, I just went there over During the summers. The summers. Okay. Yeah. But you were cooking in Dallas too. Yeah, when I wasn't doing that break. Got it. But got yeah, it. during during college I was over in Fort Worth and so I was on the line. I literally would leave class and I had my knife roll in my backpack, which I'm sure TCU doesn't want to hear. But um, yeah, I, I literally rolled right from class with my knife roll onto the line, saute pans, the whole deal. And you said you were studying business. Yep, I was. Why, why didn't you go to culinary school? I at first thought I really wanted to. And I had two thoughts. The first was I saw a lot of people who were very successful who didn't go to culinary school. So I started to wonder, is that required? And the second was I also, and this was a real blessing that I started young enough, I was looking at people who were 30, and remember how 30 used to feel really old? Yeah. Don't remind me of that, 37. <laughs> the grays are coming through my beard yeah. right now. I can't hide it anymore. I'm, oh, it's, a, it's a losing battle, man. Father time. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I remember looking at people who were 30, which felt old at the time, and thinking, that person's miserable. That person is miserable in what they're doing, and I don't know how they're going to get out of this. And so I had the opportunity to go to college, and I was offered a scholarship, which obviously helped because I didn't come from money. And that was just a really great opportunity to say, I'm going to try business school, and if I hate it, I can leave. But I would rather have a degree. I would rather turn 30 myself, decide the restaurant life isn't for me anymore, and have something I could turn back to than the alternative. And I think in the days where it's been really difficult, knowing that I would be okay if this went upside down has helped me get through that because I could go get some job. Mm-hmm. I could stay in my apartment. I could eat mm-hmm. if this closed. Mm-hmm. It, the emotional pain would be impossible mm-hmm. to manage, but I could care for myself. And chasing your dreams but covering your ass is a good model, I think. Mm. Chasing your dreams and covering your ass is a good model, for sure. So how do you find that balance of chasing your dreams but doing it in a sustainable way where you can cover your ass? I think you just have to be really smart about how you do it and who you do it with. Mm. And I'm going to 
probably be annoying to the listeners that I'm just going to keep saying, oh, it's all about the team. Yeah. But well, it is. Yeah. And I, I think we're going to unpackage that. But before we get to the point where you, you make the moves to start opening your first restaurant, Rye, at the age mm-hmm. of 25. So we're really not that far away. We're only five years away from that point on your timeline. Yeah. You're a young guy. So any other, like, what, what was your strategy from the age? When did you graduate college? How old were you? Uh, so I graduated in 2014. 2014. Yes. How old were you in 2014? So that makes me 22. 22 years old. Yeah. Um, you're working in D- the Dallas Fort Worth from like 1819 mm-hmm. to, to 22. Uh, any like what, you also traveled to the, what was six places in that four year period from graduating to. Yeah. So I did Spain while I was in college because I was studied That's abroad. Right. Okay. And then yeah after after that I did a little bit more time. I went back to Chicago for a little bit, and then I went to France. And then I went to Tanzania, and then I went to New Zealand. So what is what's the strategy here? What's what's the narrative you're telling yourself during this time? Yeah, my strategy was I want to go as far as I can and learn as much as I can from as many different people as I can, and that's why some of these stints were shorter because certainly spending a long time someplace is wonderful. You can really deeply learn that place or those people, but I was also really concerned of if I stay in one place. And I cook for the popular chefs of that place. And then I open up my own. Will my place just look like the echoes of my former masters? Instead, if I travel and I eat different types of places and different types of meals and share meals with different types of people, Mm. one, I think that will help color me as a human being and just make me a better person. And two, when I will be exposed to so many things and when I open up my place, it will be pulling from a vast experience that will help make us different mm. and unique. And that was the goal. And I recommend that to any, if you're, if you're young and healthy, the working holiday visas are pretty easy to come by. You can work in restaurants in several different countries as a result. And the, the amount you learn when you're in a new culture, especially if you don't speak the language there, just what you're forced to look at and observe. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. And you will, you'll cook differently when you yeah. come back and you'll live differently. Yeah. Uh, so if we can distill these lessons that you got, I mean, what were the biggest things? What, if you can just reflect this time, the, the things that this garnered you, sure. that had the biggest influence into the man you became, the man you are today, what were, during this time, what were those biggest lessons you learned? If you can like pick up three things and drop it on us. I would say the first is a restaurant and a career doesn't have to look the way I thought it had to look. How did you think it had to look? I thought that having three Michelin stars was my destiny mm. as a kid. You know, we've got white tablecloths and everything is all white and it's all perfect and it's all this. And I mean, you can look around. There's not a tablecloth. We've never had a tablecloth anywhere. Yeah. So in what way did this shift your perspective to say that it could look like this? And what was that image that you wanted to pursue? It was that when I thought back to the meals that were the most fun, they weren't happening in those restaurants. When I sat in a three Michelin star restaurant in Paris, which in theory should be the best there is, right? And I thought, I didn't have any fun at that meal. The food was all amazing, but it wasn't any fun. And why would I want to build a restaurant where it's not any fun? I was terrified that I would build a prison for myself of a place I didn't want to be. So we designed a restaurant that we wanted to be at all the time. 
And that's why Rai is like that. That's why Rai is loud. That's why Rai doesn't have... We don't really have a dress code. We more have dress guidelines. We want people to be who they are and to create that connection to the guest because that's the most memorable. The best meal I had last year was an animal we butchered and cooked over a little tiny fire we built in a hut. Yeah. We didn't... It wasn't all these fancy dinners that I went to. So that in, in that year of travel, yeah. So get into that 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 situation. What, where were you? What was going on with this this hut and this animal? Oh, so that was in Ecuador, okay. which I had a chance to go to in September. Okay. And so uh, we were kayaking the Amazon River. Is this recently or when? Yeah, you no. Were... This was like three oh, months ago, okay. four months ago. I thought this was yeah. when you were younger, but still, you can finish your story. No, we were uh, kayaking the Amazon. Me and my best friend decided we were going to do that. And then we found this indigenous tribe that we could stay just with. Just kayak in the Amazon. Yeah, no just, you know. Yeah. People. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, you know. Just, just you know, winning awards with time to go kayak the Amazon. Trying, you know, trying to. <laughs> you got to make time for both. For sure. Right? Yeah. And, but I think when I was traveling, I stayed with people, especially when I was traveling in Eastern Africa and also Northern Africa, actually. You just stay with people who have no money. And they're, and it doesn't really occur to them that it's an issue. They seem so genuinely joyful that we had one meal. We cooked it just on the dirt, uh, making goat. This was in Kenya. And the people were so joyful to just be together and eating and sharing this meal. I would say Kenyans are some of the most grateful people I've ever met. And it really makes you wonder if all the fuss is worth it when you see people clearly having an amazing meal sitting in the mud with no shoes on. Mm. And it's changed. Obviously we do a lot of things here and we're fussy and we're exacting and we have these standards that we want to uphold. But that's the biggest thing is I had more fun with people than I did in a lot of these expensive environments. And if it's not fun, I don't want to be there. Not as a guest, not as a worker, and I certainly don't want to own it. When did this this like like what was the pivotal point, the experience that you happened where you had this aha moment that it wasn't about the accomplishments, uh, the acknowledgement, the 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 awards, but personal satisfaction, fun, and just being happy. When I did would you say that yeah, out? being in Eastern Africa. Okay, because I'd always been chasing that. Um, my consulting company ended up going out of business. So we, you know, I kind of was building myself up and I'm on the rocket ship and then it all comes crashing down on me. So that's, to be honest, actually why I left for Europe and Africa and because I didn't want to deal with that. I wanted to go someplace where no one knew who I was, which is another great reason to travel. We're going to pull back layers in that, brother. Yeah, for sure. What happened? Um, I had started this consulting company and I kind of had the opportunity to change what we were doing to get involved in this really amazing project where we were actually designing robots for restaurants. Okay. This is back in 2015. Wow. Right. So you see that stuff kind of rolling out now, but this was the very forefront of doing it. You're talking like, like, uh, like bear robots, like helping with like servers or no, we were, like flippy robots, like hanging from the ceiling cooking. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were talking about building restaurants that didn't have people in them Okay. and building them in a way that didn't, just make it easier for a pizza chain to deliver, but in a way that solved the food desert problem. And this was your vision? This is your company? This, this so, so my company got hired to go do it. Okay. 
But basically the deal kind of became, hey, if you're going to be on board, you need to stop everything else you're doing because you're going to be doing this now because this is the problem we're trying to solve. We're going to use automation and sure, we're going to sell some of our robots to the big chains, but what we're going to do is solve the food desert problem because there's a huge problem where when we get off work at one o'clock in the morning, where can I get a warm, fresh, nutritious meal? Not many places. Not many places. The place that has all the restaurant employees going that place. Exactly. <laughs> and I can get a burger for sure. Yeah. I can get taquitos and tacos, but you know, that was kind of the problem we want to solve. That's what bought me in okay. was we can solve this problem for so many people like me who need a meal that's affordable and healthy. And that whole parent company that I joined into just shut down. So there was another company. Um, so it wasn't your, was it? So you were so con- my consulting did, company, I basically shut down everything we're doing to join this other company. Got it. And that company just falls apart. Okay. But now I'm kind of looking at this saying, I just transitioned out of everything we were doing. We had a retail business online where we were selling all kinds of shelf products that we had helped different chefs develop and we had shut that down. I've shut down all of my other consulting clients. We're not doing anything except for these robots. Now the robots are gone, so the company's gone. So what was your thought process? Why, why were you making these decisions? Well, my thought process was we can do something that changes the world. Mm. And I love the spices that we helped make and I loved selling them online and I loved being a part of that. But what can I do that outlasts me? Because to me, if I can do amazing work and that work lives beyond me, that's how I cheat death. So we're knowing what you know now and reflecting, it's been over five years since this happened. Reflecting at what happened, why it all fall apart. What, what do you think happened? Why did it fall apart? It's kind of hard to say because I didn't get to be a part of all of those conversations. I think we just had a really big goal and you should, you should have big goals. You have to have the courage to have those big goals because why would you fight for something else? I think what we didn't have was a roadmap to get from point A to point B. We were chasing point B, but there wasn't... A strategy, we, a plan. Uh, we, right. We didn't We didn't know how to do it. Nobody knew how to do it. Yeah. And these were... Trailblazing. It's hard. You can't go look yeah. at somebody else and say, this is how they do it. Let's take what they did and try to do it a little bit better. You're just taking stabs in the dark. Yeah. These were really successful people, really great people that I got a chance to work with. And I think that was really what it was, was no one had built a robot that could do what we were doing. And that's just very difficult and it's very expensive. And I think at the end of the day, like any business... The money ran out. What, was, what kind of robot were you trying to build? We were trying to build you know, a fast, casual restaurant that cooked healthy food and didn't have any people. So the restaurant itself could have, a, you know, could be 500 square feet. Yeah. I mean, and it could be right downtown. This is right around the corner. I think part yeah. of it, too, is that maybe you're a little too ahead of the curve. Um, maybe, I don't yeah. know if the consumer and the, the industry was quite ready to make those changes and those investments. That's a, that's a big investment for not a lot of... Like, it's hard for the restaurant industry to change and evolve because there isn't a lot of additional revenue to invest in evolution, unless you go to some rich person and say, "Hey, right. like, like, put the bill on this, this vision, this plan," um, but those are big risks to take. You know, sure, and and you know they had the capital, yeah. But I think at the end of the day, just for me, I bought in really hard to this vision, and then when it didn't work out, 
I kind of found myself wondering what's the next step for me then? What do I... And this is what sent you to Kenya to kind of go explore. Yeah. Were you cooking in Kenya? So uh, I did France first and then, yeah, I go to Kenya. I just want to do something really different. So in Kenya, I was doing, I was helping start a community radio station oh, cool. in Western Kenya. Then I ended up picking up a client at a resort in the Serengeti over in Tanzania. So I was, I did go back to food, but I kind of just took a break from, I did the French project and I said, you know, I just want a total break. I will just want to not, I don't want anybody to ask me for my opinions on how we should build something at all. So I did the community radio station where, you know, I did some work and it was cool, but I wasn't the bag man. I didn't have to cook for anybody. I never talked about food except for when we were eating Ugali. That was the only time. And, you know, then that's when I kind of, like we were talking about, turn the corner of, I think my future can look different than what I thought it had to be. Because mm. I was either going to build a giant consulting corporation or I was going to be this three Michelin star restaurant. And I said, maybe neither, actually. Yeah. And this is around the time you get a call from Nick. So I then go to New Zealand. I do that. I live there for a while. Then I move back to Texas. I said, okay. Wait, what was what was New Zealand? You said sure. you did that. But uh, I was uh, I was working there. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was working in New Zealand, which was amazing. Got it. New Zealand's gorgeous. Everyone should go visit. I, I would love to go. Yeah, it's amazing. It looks exactly like the Lord of the Rings. Like you just you just ride your motorcycle through the mountains, and it's exactly like that. It's crazy. That does sound amazing. I've and, heard some other stories about New Zealand too. That yeah. like weed just grows on the mountains. <laughs> like, and it's like people just throw like seeds and it's just like wild out there. And I don't know why. Like, is that true? <laughs> uh, I don't want to incriminate anybody that I know there in New Zealand, but maybe, maybe yeah, it's true. Yeah. Things. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> and so I moved back to Texas and I'm just not really sure what I want to do. You know, I'm, it was really hard for me to leave yeah. because my company had fallen apart. Um, I'd actually broken up with my fiance. So that was really hard. Yeah. And I come back and I say, okay, I think, I think I'm good now. I think the healing process I needed to go through, I've done, and I want to go do something. I'm trying to figure out what that is. And then, yeah, my friend Nick calls me and he says, there's a small restaurant space and the place that was in there closed down and I'm sick of my job. I'll quit and start a restaurant with you if you want. So So, we did. So that's a great spot to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about like how this all evolved and came Mm -hmm. into fruition. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Are you looking to grow your restaurant in 2023? Are you and your team focusing on driving more revenue? Or are you interested in connecting with diners more? Maybe you want to increase sales without physically expanding on your brick and mortar. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you're looking for Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy. Attract more guests to your website that's designed to easily connect their contact info and data so you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you. Stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business. And why wouldn't you want to make all of your systems work better together, improve margins, and conquer the chaos of your restaurant's digital presence? Pop Menu, technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. 
For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's entire collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back. So you, your business partner today yep. calls you then and says, what are you up to? I want to open a restaurant. Are you in? Yeah. Yeah, and I said, you know, absolutely. I'm going to have a lot of opinions on how it runs. And he says, that's great. I don't have opinions on how it runs. I want you to run it. I just, you know, I want to be a part of it. I want to be on the business side. And so that's kind of how we split it up is he's in charge of basically anything that a guest doesn't experience. Okay. So before we get any further, who's Nick? How do you know Nick? And what did, what does, what's his background? What does he bring to the table? Yeah, so uh, I started that consulting company. Yep. I get into a co-worker, co-working incubator space. And Nick had started a company in college also, and he was in the same space. And it was him and a couple other guys, and then everybody else was probably 45 or older. And what was his business? Uh, It it involved selling flowers to veterans' graves that would get auto-delivered for you. Okay. So... Was he working? It had in nothing to do with too? restaurants. No. So what? What made him want to open a restaurant? He, because Nick and I had done some work together. He said, "You know, I'm a hardworking person who wants to make something out of myself. So is Tanner. I want to. I want to be a part of a project that I can grow from the ground up. So being in restaurants was not Nick's motivation. Okay. Nurturing something and seeing it grow—that was Nick's motivation. And I think what he saw in me was here's a person with talent and vision who needs another partner to make it possible and I can be that person and I can be a part of that growth. Wait, so this is what he saw in you or what you saw in him? I think that's what Nick saw in me was Nick saying, I want to build something and here's somebody who has something worth growing. Okay. So did he have um, success with his, his startup? Was it, was there capital in the bank to be able to, to throw money at? Uh, no, no. Um, sorry, Nick, but, uh, (laughs) it, American remembrance didn't work out, but, my American Remembrance. Yeah, that's what it was called. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So so he decided it didn't work out and that he was kind of just looking to like start a restaurant. With yeah, no he got in <laughs> he'd gotten involved in medical okay. along the way and just said, you know, I'm now I'm now doing medical and I, you know, this is just isn't for me. I want to do something more tactile, something with people, mm. something I think a lot of people have that feeling, you know, yeah. you're doing a job and you never see the customers and you never see the product. It's it's hard to do a job that's only on a computer because a restaurant's so tactile and the way you feel in the space and the relationships you make is, it's just fun. So what do you know about Nick at this point? Um, do you know his strengths? Do you know his weaknesses? Do you know whether or not he compliments you? Yeah, picking a business partner is a really hard thing to do and you have to be really careful when you do it. The benefit for me with Nick is because I'd seen him work before, Nick and I weren't friends who went into business together. We were business colleagues who then became friends. And I think that's what helped me have the confidence that we could do it together because I had seen him waking up every day and cold calling people who didn't want to hear from him. I'd seen him keep fighting. I'd 
American Remembrance hadn't worked out. Then he starts working on this medical. I see him as just a hardworking person who wants to make something of himself and who's willing to do the work when it's not fun or flashy. And I would be very cautious going to business with somebody who I was just social friends with because I don't know that I would have seen that. But when it's 2.30 in the morning and both of you are sitting in the co-working space still since 8 a.m. that same day and you're still working and you're still going and he's still positive, that's how you know this guy can handle the restaurant business. Yeah. Yeah. So what about his actual skills? If you look at who you are, sure. your skills, your abilities, what you bring to the table, obviously you, he knows to call you because you have experience working in some right. of the best restaurants in the world and traveling and gaining this perspective. Um, you also went to school for business. You have business. I mean, he also had that business sure. admin too as well. But like how, how, do you, how does the two of you separately – How's that better than one of you alone? Like, what, yeah. like, how did you guys complete each other? One, I think having somebody to push some of that stress onto is super helpful, right? Somebody you can just share the emotional burden yeah. of the restaurant that's with. That's huge. So that's huge. From his, you know, more specific skills, uh, he's a chemical engineer by trade, okay. which means he's very good at figuring out- And he was selling flowers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's had an interesting career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's very good at figuring out how something- broke and how we should fix it, which is great because there is always something broken in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. He's also just really great at kind of building pro formas and taking care of financial. And I don't handle any of our, I joke with people, if we owe you money, you have to call someone else (laughs) because Nick, Nick handles all of that. And he's just very detail oriented on making sure that stuff is taken care of. So did you guys know these lanes were going to be your lanes in the beginning? Or oh, 100%. Okay. No, we set it up that way. Got it. When we set it up, we'd originally talked about me being the chef and him being you know front of house business guy. And we said, that's probably not the right call because you just don't have the experience in restaurants like this. And that's why we set it up where I'll be the creative director. We'll bring in Taylor. He'll be the head chef. And we'll bring in somebody who's managing the bar. I'll be out front kind of bringing all of the experience together. Okay. So um, who's Taylor? So Taylor was a friend of mine that I met in first grade. Got it. In North Carolina when I used to live there as a kid. And when I moved back to America, I'd gone on this big motorcycle trip. I reconnect with Taylor and we hadn't talked in probably 15 years, but I just hit him up on Facebook and say, Hey, can we get together? You know, we, we were friends as kids. Let's get together. And it turned out he'd become a chef too. And he was kind of in that point in his career where he's a sous chef that's not getting his shot at chef. Okay. And he's frustrated about it. Cause of course you would be right. Everybody, everybody thinks they're ready and can't get their shot wants to. And so I just called him and said, there's this restaurant space. And I think I want to take it over. I don't want to be the head chef because I need to be the guy who's putting the whole thing together. I have a very clear vision of what Rye is going to be, but I can't be chopping onions and managing the servers and fixing the cocktails and talking to the guests. So I think you should quit your job and move to Texas where you've never been and come work with me and this guy you've never met. And he said, yes. Okay. <laughs> and we've been uh, together ever since. I love that. So oh, how did he, so you're, would you call yourself a chef? Do you, do you feel yeah. like you're a chef? Okay. Cause it's not in your title. So I'm curious if you realized maybe that wasn't your path or maybe you didn't 
want to go down that route and you, you recognize your strength somewhere else. Was it hard for you as somebody who is so close to food and loves food and identifies as a chef to give up that, that chef title to somebody else? So I think it has been in the past when people say, oh, Taylor's the chef and he is definitely. And he does some really great things. And you met Ashley earlier and she and Alexander, they're fantastic and their talents are so necessary. And it did bother me uh, at different times to say, well, I was really involved in making that. He said, but what kind of changed my frame of reference was understanding that, again, I don't think any one person makes a restaurant successful. And I don't think that restaurateur is any less of a title than chef. And I think we've been trained by TV chef media that the chef's the only person who matters. And I said, well, that's just clearly not the case, though, is it? I mean, you're bringing up another great point as to why I'm, I'm really – I think there's an issue with our industry not having control of the narrative of what our industry is. You see it with the award culture. You see right. it with um, – like I'm on name drop, but like Thrillist, Eater, and like all these different media outlets that are, are focused on the consumer as, mm-hmm. the, as the end user, right? And it's just like they're focused on what the consumer wants and then making things sexy, and, and we chase that. And – um, I kind of lost my train of thought of exactly where I'm going, but I think that it's important that we take the, the, the narrative back and say it's not just about eyes on us. It's not just about all those other things, that the sexiness of the food. It's, it's about what's happening behind the scenes and our mental health and uh, sustainability, not just serving sustainable food, but emotional sustainability. And like, what, what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Yeah, I think we've been really fortunate to get a lot of positive press and those groups specifically yeah. Thrillist Eater, you know, yeah. they've written really nice things about they, us. The reason why they came to mind is I saw it when I was yeah. doing my research. Yeah. So, you know, I love those publications and they've done so much to make our restaurant successful. And I don't just mean us, I mean all restaurants yeah. successful, right? Because chefs have definitely gone from people who no one thought about to being people we think about a lot. And so I do appreciate that the media has kind of popularized this and made it possible. But at the same time, I do agree with you that- too much leverage. Like, I feel like we're, we're trying to make them happy. Some of them can, yeah. right? You cook. When you start cooking for those groups because you want that acclaim, I think you really start to undercut what, you're, what you really can do yeah. and who you are. And I also think, the narrative of the one person, as I said before, just it's just not true. Yeah. And so I would love to see groups like that finding interesting ways to look at more than one person and really look at a team. The same way that we do in sports. Yeah. Not putting one person in the spotlight, but like it takes an army to do this. The quarterback gets yeah. a lot of a lot of credit, right? Mm-hmm. But you turn on Sports Center, they're always talking about receivers and backs and they're talking about these different positions how far is that receiver gonna or how far is that running back gonna go if they don't have a hole to get through sure absolutely and i think it's going to be really cool to see that change and people wanting to see these other stories and but part of that is restaurants bringing their people more to the forefront and that's the reason our menus don't actually have anyone's name on them is because we say, but that person's not the only person. Mm. And if you look on our website, you'll see a list of Everyone's eight names. names. Yeah. yeah. It, pretty much every manager has got their name on there yeah. almost. I love that. So you are building your team. 
you uh nick reaches out, reaches out to you mm-hmm. you reach out to taylor so it's three of you in the very beginning correct okay um where's the money coming from because it, no offense and i don't mean to sound like an asshole but it doesn't sound like there's money on the table yet. <laughs> there's not okay and so interestingly i've moved back i just pick up a bartending job to kind of figure out what my next move is going to be so i'm bartending at this cocktail bar this couple sits down one day and goes why are you here i said what do you mean they said well, we've been here several times. You're good. We like you. Your chat's really good. You seem really creative. What are you doing here? Like, why aren't... And I said, well, where where should I be? They said, you should be running your own place. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'm looking at it, whatever. They said, we and our friends would give you money if you opened up your own place. So you never know where your future investor is going to yeah. be. That's why you should treat every guest as if they are your future investor because they could very well be. 100%. Yeah. And... Literally, people I didn't know at all ended up being most of the money that went into the company. Wow. wow. I mean, I knew them after, you know, at that point. I got to know them coming to the restaurant. I ended up you know, going to their house for parties. I still know them both um, really well. And, but yeah, people who just met me on the street and said, there's something here. So then I get to know them. And I, That's a really kind offer. Thank you. This opportunity pops up. And I call them and I said, hey, do you remember that we had that conversation? And they said, yes. I said, okay, well, what if we really did it though? And they said, well, we're going to have a lot more questions and need to see a lot of paperwork from you. And I said, okay. And this is like 2017? Yeah, 2017. Yeah. And I said, well, Nick's really good at paperwork. So uh, let's get this started. And we ended up putting it together and we did a raise and we sold 20% of our company and we ended up raising money. We didn't actually have all of the money raised until we had already opened, which is not a good strategy for people who are listening. You should try to have that organized. But we were just kind of, all these things just kept falling into place. You know, I talked about relativity earlier that I'm putting in the work and these things just seem to find their way. We said, this is just right. The space is just right. This community just feels right to us. Putting Rye here, Everything just kind of started to line up, and we said we've got to do it, and so we did. Yeah. So the the first community where, where Rye was born was in McKinley, correct? Yeah. So McKinney's a no, McKinney. Thank McKinney's you. a city north of Dallas, um, about forty miles. Okay. Um, and what what was it about this community that you said you just felt right? Why did it feel right? What was great about it was us coming in there. We thought there's so many people who are living here who are from these big cities. Uh, they're from Dallas and they like these downtown restaurants. They like these small plates formats and no one's doing that in this community. Yeah. And we think we could succeed here doing it. Also the barrier to entry just from a cost perspective was so much lower than if we try to do something in downtown Dallas. Yeah. So it's kind of the perfect combination of it's cheap enough that we can pull it off. It's small enough that we probably can't get into too much trouble and we don't have a good direct competitor, which means if we're not good when we start and we were not good when we started, we will have a little bit of time to get it together. Got it. Because if we'd opened the restaurant, if our restaurant opened in Dallas the way that it was, we would have gotten some bad articles about us. Nobody would have come. They would have just gone to all the wonderful restaurants we have here in Dallas. Yeah. But because we were doing something different, 
people nobody's paying came. attention to what's happening up in McKinney. Exactly. Yeah. And they came and the people who there were people who ate with us who I know said this isn't great, but they really do seem passionate about it. Yeah. And these three guys are all here clearly working hard. And because we had nobody coming to the restaurant, we was, had people walking out. Was it just the three of you? Did you have employees at the uh, point? So yeah, we hired we you know hired a few people. And, How many seats? Uh, it's thirteen tables. Okay, so it's, yeah. it's it's it could be the cool thing about starting small is you can manage it with just a few people. You don't right. have to you don't have to rely on other people. You and then you can slowly scale over time. Right. It, it is really difficult. Uh, one of the sort of rookie mistakes of opening a small place is you then do really top what your revenue can be. It was interesting listening to an interview you did where you talked about that, you know, restaurants being so driven by butts and seats. Mm -hmm. And how do you kind of expand beyond that? And well, the most natural way to expand beyond that is obviously build another location. And that's eventually what we did. But I would say it was perfect for us because we were young and maybe didn't know that we shouldn't do it. And we were able to get around behind it. But so many times I do talk to other restaurateurs and I say, the restaurant you're opening is too small. And I understand that that makes it seem manageable now, but I'm telling you, you're not going to have enough money to pay yourself and pay the people who are going to be running this instead yeah. of you. The argument is that the amount of work you do for a 13 seat or a 13 table restaurant is not that far off from like a 30 table restaurant. The things sure. that happen behind the scenes. I mean, yeah, like, but like the, if you can just have more, points of transaction aka seats then you can make the, that's it's like there's all this stuff that happens in the background and that's not going away whether you're five seats or 30 seats like for the, sure like the the business stuff right running payroll takes exactly, exactly as much time so you have to like so if you can just have the volume then it makes up a big difference so the volume does play a, a role there but if you're super fine dining and your, your price points and you have huge margins uh or they're smaller margins but you know like huge tickets uh Sure. You know, what I'm trying to say, uh, tabs. You can make up for it, right? But yeah, but we, you know, but we weren't because we were like we discussed earlier. Our point wasn't to be this crazy, expensive, super fancy button-down restaurant. Our, the point of our restaurant was to be fun, yeah. and certainly we're not a cheap restaurant by any means. But the vision was to do really great food at a really high level and still keep it fun. So you have three partners that are mm-hmm. like uh, operating partners. How many investors did you end up getting? So we've got a group of investors. Uh, it's about ten people. Okay, and they, is it just cash, or do they have equity in the business? Uh, well, they gave us cash for equity in the business. Okay, so yeah, we sold about twenty percent of the company. So twenty um, percent of the company belongs to your investors, mm-hmm. and the remaining eighty uh, percent belongs is split between. Or at this point, was your chef Taylor? A partner? Yeah, Taylor wasn't a partner. Okay, and. Ashley, who would join us during COVID, she wasn't a partner either. Both of those we made partners later on. Okay. So um, how did you like? How did you guys come to these terms? And what advice do you have for setting up these terms? So yeah, our investment vehicle was called an 80-20 flip. And the idea being that we'll sell 20% of the company and we'll pay to that 20% 80% of the profits, i.e. four times what you would be which you would own yeah. until you've recouped your money. But is there some other, like, is there owners paid? Are you paying yourself at least? You're not surviving off that 20% of profit, are you? So, two people? Okay, so Nick and I didn't get paid anything for the first year. The, the first time I made more money than one of our servers was 
2021. No. Damn. Yeah, 2021. So, so our, in our third year, I finally made more than our servers did. So how were you paying yourself? Did you have money put away? Actually, maybe it was later. I'll have to look. Uh, so I won... Uh, ate at the restaurant a lot, especially when it was early and nobody was coming Slept to the at restaurant. the restaurant, bathed at the restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lived at the restaurant. So I ended up taking a consulting gig when we opened, like right before we opened the restaurant. And I, so I was working full-time at the restaurant and then I was doing my consulting job. Got it. And so I, that's how, that's how I was financing my life. That's how I was, but I mean, I was never going out. I was always at the restaurant. So it wasn't... I was living off $2,000 a month in consulting okay. and how, that's all. How much, I mean, I n- I've never seen, right? I, I can't, and it, I, I won't see what it was ever. Maybe I can look at some photos. It did burn down. It did burn down. Uh, did it completely burn down or just beyond About repair? 40% of the building's completely gone now. Okay. You know, if we drove up there, it just doesn't exist any longer. Okay. And the rest has some pretty significant smoke damage. So it's a pretty significant gut job we're when looking at. In August. August of this year. Yes. Okay, so that's... Or kind of, last year, technically. Yeah, technically. Yeah. Um, so when did things start to turn around? Because you said, like, paint the picture of what wasn't going right. Like, what, where were you yeah. really struggling early on? So what we were struggling with was everything. <laughs> um, you know, so Nick and I had run companies, but we never had a staff of any real size, you know, a couple people. So that was a challenge. How do you manage? You know, the, the three steps kind of are, you've got to be good at your job. Then you've got to make the people around you good at their jobs. And I'm in that phase now where I have to make managers good at making the people around them good at their jobs. Yes. And that's been the hardest transition for me is how do you train a manager to be good how, at managing? How do you recreate yourself and others to get yeah. them to your point where they can then turn around and do it to, to somebody else? How, do they, how does the culture stay the same without you being able to touch every person in the same way? So- Reflecting back at um, 2018, you said you're doing everything wrong. Um, really get into details of like, like I mean, you, you kind of spelt it out, like the management part, but how did you start changing? How did you start getting better about it? So the thing we were doing right was we really cared. And everyone we interacted with could tell that we really cared. And we were always trying to do the right thing. If you didn't like a dish, we took it off your bill and we brought you something else. If... You know, we'd made a mistake on your reservation. Our goal was always make the guest feel like the priority, always make them feel whole. We want to go so overboard with making up for the mistake that you had a better time at the end than you would have if the mistake hadn't happened. Yeah. And that was really important. We had this very service-oriented approach, and we had this interesting food that we were doing. Yeah. We just weren't quite great at knitting it all together. Yeah. We started getting it together, though, you know, we hit the holidays. Those go pretty well for our first holidays in business. That's when we really kind of start clicking. But we so had when that. When did you open in 2018? July 4th. July 4th. Okay. Yeah. Taylor moved to Texas on July 2nd and we opened on July 4th. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So your first few days of being a business for a few months was really just trying to figure it out. Who are right. we? What are we doing? Like you're, you're finding your identity as you go. Well, absolutely. And what was really difficult during this time is so many people were actually walking out of the restaurant before they would eat. Really? That was a regular occurrence. Is it because it was just taking too long for you to get to them? No, it was because people hated our format. They hated the small plates format. And they told us all the time. They wrote us reviews on Yelp about how much they hated the format. Yeah, you think you think Dallas, Texas, you think I want like meat and potatoes. It's 
I mean, it's 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 no longer a meat potatoes city. Yeah, it's not like that. Yeah, uh, we have that reputation. It is unwarranted, but we definitely, <laughs> especially as you get further out of Dallas, you do have those people who that is what they want. Yeah, and a top selling dish at three restaurants you could walk to from Rye was chicken fried steak. And we didn't sell chicken and we also didn't sell steak and we didn't sell soup and we didn't sell salad and we didn't sell chicken, anything. We didn't sell burgers. And so people were coming in and being, what do you mean? It's cold outside. I want soup. And we said, well, we don't serve soup because we're not passionate about soup. We don't want to cook it. So we don't. And people hated that. And people would stand up. One woman threw a menu at our host and said, good luck (laughs) one time. Uh, They, they would just walk out and say, this is a deeply broken restaurant. Why are you doing this? And to the point that we were having conversations, like, should we put a few entrees on the menu? Should we go more? And we said, no, we told our investors from the outset, this is what Rye is going to be. And we're not going to change it. We will run this company into the ground, how it is before we will change the DNA of the company. We will make adjustments. Of course, we've made tons of adjustments along the way to better compete. We didn't have all the answers, and it's a fallacy to think that you do. However, we said this is who we are at our core. You can't change your idea. And we can't change that. Yeah. I would, Nick said something amazing, right, when we were raising money. Someone said, what's your worst case scenario for the business? Walk me through that. And Nick said, I expect you're asking me how much money would we lose or how fast that would happen, and that's not my worst case scenario, actually. Tanner and I will run a business that can stay open. I'm very confident that we can do that. My worst case scenario, though, is in order to stay open, we build a place that is only okay, Mm. where the food's only okay, where the experience is only okay, where the margins are only okay, where the return is only okay, and we're sitting on a business that we can't close down because we'd lose too much money but it's not making money and it's not making us happy and we're just stuck in something that will never give us anything we need in our life. That's my worst case scenario. And they said that was a great answer and then they ended up giving us a bunch of money. So right on Nick for that. But I do think that is my worst case scenario and I'm so glad that we had the perseverance to sit through it because when you've had more people walk out of your restaurant than ate dinner that night, you do start to question if what you're doing is wrong, especially for myself because I put so much pressure on myself in that Nick didn't have that restaurant experience. These investors that I brought in came in because of me. I moved Taylor across the country because of the vision I sold him and that vision is being actively rejected. That was incredibly difficult and painful. But you stuck with it. Yeah, absolutely. So when did the tide start to turn? I would say... You know, the holidays started being good. That's when I think we were really starting to serve what Rye needed to be. It took us a few months, but we got there. What was Rye in August and what was it in December? In theory, it was the same thing. We were just, one, better at operating it. We'd kind of figured out some things that sounded really cool that a restaurant should be that the guests were just not into and we weren't passionate enough about them to keep doing them. So what did you adapt that wasn't losing your identity but also being better to serve your guests? So one thing we did was make our menu a little larger and then start changing it less frequently. Okay. Because what we were finding was restaurants that change their menu every week, no one's going to eat at your restaurant every week. 
So we're spending all of this time developing these cool dishes that no one's ever seen. And instead, we could put something new on every month and that thing could be better because we had time to develop it. We had time to put it together. And that's really once a month is the most you can realistically expect someone to come to a restaurant. Sure, you're going to have those super regulars who are in there twice a week and that's going to happen. But the average person who says we go there all the time, that's a person who maybe comes every quarter. Yeah. Therefore, do I need to change my menu 12 times between the last time you came in? It's so much work. Absolutely it's not. Like, it's like paddling, like just treading water. Yeah. You're like just keeping your head up, just trying to, this is who we say we are. We, we want to do what we say we do, but it, but you're doing it for yourself really at the end of the day because you want to do, it's your own integrity. I said, I'm going to do this. I want to follow through with it, but at what cost? And so we said, you know, we, we don't think this is making the guest experience better. It's not creating value. And in fact, it's burning us out. So we're going to expand the menu so people have more options. We became a lot better of understanding what the guests needed the restaurant to be. We became much better listeners. How many menu items did you have in August? How many menu items did you have in December? I think when we started, we only had maybe 12 items. Yeah. And then we expanded it up to 20. And I think now we kind of sit at that like 23 now, Mark the whole menu change or did you just key items? Change? Yeah. So we never changed the whole menu. So you have your anchors so people can consistently rely on the top sellers. And so Our like goal is that if you're coming regularly, you can always have something new, but you can always have something familiar because what we also found out was happening was people were coming and saying, Oh man, we can't wait to have the tacos. I've been telling Jerry about those for two weeks. Oh, well we don't serve the tacos anymore. Then we're starting your meal with disappointment. Mm. Regret is the first thing you taste at my table is not an acceptable <laughs> yeah. model. Yeah. And so that kind of, we have a couple dishes that never change now because they're just so popular. And then we have other things where we kind of leave them on until maybe this thing went out of season or maybe we're just not passionate about that anymore or we think the guests have kind of They've seen it. Yeah. Also, where my mind is going too is from like a menu engineering standpoint. Um, it's when you're reinventing a menu every week and you're managing inventory, and it's really hard to kind of dial in that consistency and the margins and you know the the science behind it all. When sure. you're constantly having to reinvent, 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 the energy that goes into creativity doesn't it gets. I think I, th- I feel like it might pull from the really honing in and focusing on how do we streamline process and system around one thing to make it you know like efficient and how do how do we find like the 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 right margins like you don't have time to play with it to make it as a big of a return on investment for your work for sure i also don't think that you can create something as good i i've been to restaurants where they're changing the menu all the time and to me it starts to look like they're not changing the menu all the time it almost seems as if they're reorganizing mm. the menu. Okay, so well, strawberries were on your chicken set last week, and now strawberries are on a pork set. And I go, of course you can reuse an ingredient. We do all the time. But this cool thing is now just being recycled into other places. Yeah. You know, it's 
it's the same thing that we talk about with apothecary when we want to be this really avant-garde cocktail lounge you have to go beyond everything that you can just get out of the package right if we only have 12 things we're playing with we can only make so many combinations yeah. and that's what starts to happen if you run your menu yeah. that much yeah so how does the business continue to evolve into 2019 so you make it through the holiday season yeah you start realizing you have to give a little bit to to find the balance between who you are and who your consumers want you to be but like i wouldn't say that we gave okay i think we sharpened okay i think the the guests gave us the ability to remove the dross which could expose the gold because they showed us the things that we didn't need to be doing and the things we didn't need to be doing we weren't passionate about doing so we still don't serve soup except for when other restaurants close for snow days we open up and serve ramen that's the only soup that we serve okay so what because we're not passionate about soup okay so (laughs) so how did you evolve in 2019 how did the the, not just the food because i mean the food is, I think, unique to each restaurant, but really the, where we can learn is on the business side of yeah, things. Yeah, of course. Right? Absolutely. So, so how did you guys start to really hum as a, as a business? I think we, we really started clicking with our team. Yeah. Our team understood what we were trying to do, which meant they could focus on what we're trying to do. And it's just that communication. So it's you, Nick, Taylor, and how many, how many employees do you have in 2019? Um, I'm going to guess maybe a dozen. Okay. You know, when we started coming. Because okay. I remember July looking over the numbers and thinking, okay, this is this is going to work. Yeah. We're going to be okay. We're going to hit Christmas, and I'm feeling really confident about the next six months. We're going to hit this 18-month mark, and we're going to be good. We're communicating with our team. We're making our needs known. We're communicating with the guests and starting to build those relationships that are going to be so critical to making it successful. Dale DeGroff once said, I don't go to bars. I go to bartenders. And we really kind of started to get that energy of people are coming for us. Yeah. You know, and because we were just putting in the work, we were getting to know people. And that's when it was July, I remember, really feeling confident. 2019. 2019. I'm feeling super confident. One year from above, exactly. approximately a year from opening. We did the year. This was a brutal, brutal year, and it's always going to be when you start your first restaurant. Yeah. But I'm starting to feel good. The numbers are going up. We're just. By how much? How much percent growth from oh, beginning? I had 200. I mean, I, I kid you not, we would serve six people for dinner. Wow. We would do a Friday, and I mean, I would say we got ourselves to our year-over-year numbers. We probably grew 50% mm-hmm. at least. And reflecting back at this, you know, your, your cash flow is growing, but what? How, yeah. how is the business itself transforming and evolving over that time? that was influencing that influencing that or you like you'd say you were just getting sharper or or, or yeah. was it that you weren't budging and then that your people were, were finally starting to find so you. more yes definitely more more of the right people started finding us because as we refined what rye should be and could be which happened because of the guests but also happened because we started attracting the right types of people yeah. to work there yeah and those people then transitioned rye and said well we shouldn't do it like this or and this is where listening is so important. Hey, I worked at this other restaurant and we did it this way and I think that'll work here. Mm. If you create an environment where you're the rock star, where your word goes and you're not willing to listen, you are throwing away unbelievable amounts of institutional knowledge that yeah. your company has and is trashing. Yeah. And we had some really key people kind of come into our organization at the time, some of whom are still here. 
and they just sort of said we should do it a little bit more like this, or we should do that, and they started catching the things that we couldn't see. Example of somebody that that, that offered, like what was something that was offered to you that you didn't see until this perspective was brought to you by an employee? That's a really good question. I would say we had this woman named Heather who came in, and she's still here. She's the beverage director of Ryan Apothecary, and she had just such a keen sense of how to have fun at a table. She had come from the craft beer world where that's the whole product, basically. And she helped infuse that fun, not just for the guests, but also into the team. She was this champion of fun on the culture. So how did, how did that fun come out? How did she, what did, what did she tell you to do? It wasn't, it just kind of leaks out of her. Okay. You know, it's like squeezing a sponge and it just water goes everywhere. It's just kind of how Heather was. And that really helped because despite the fact that I say, oh, the restaurant was supposed to be fun and et cetera, I was very much that first year trying so desperately not to be the chefs I didn't want to work for anymore because I took it so seriously. And she helped lighten up the environment, which allowed people to be successful. Mm. And I think Taylor, Nick, and I had a lot of trouble doing that because we were just so close to it and so much was riding on us. And so she could do that. There's another woman who came in, Catherine, and she really said, we've got to organize some stuff in here. You know, this, you guys are running this bar like it's a frat house and you've got a, we'd never actually run inventory before. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were just go fast and break things, yeah. right? And she was like, okay, but you also need to, you know, count your liquor. And <laughs> yeah. you also need to kind of set some of these more standards. You can't, how can we train people to be effective when everything just lives in your head? Yeah, how can we show people what to do when there's no picture of what that looks like? Exactly. Yeah. And so those things really started to transform the company because now more people could understand what we were going to do and how they could effectively participate in that mission. Yes. So when I say we were talking, we were communicating better with the team, that's what I mean, is the team knew this is my role. This is what we're doing. Here's how I can be a part of it. Because a company is really just a group of people who all agree to follow the same dream. Mm, that's what the vision is. Exactly. Uh, not beyond the, the dream. It's also the same culture. We have the same values, right? Exactly. That's why we have to write these things down because when, when turbulence does come or when there is a, a gust of wind that tries to, tries to take us off center line, we, we can find that. Like writing this down is, is painting the line in the center of the runway to get back to it. For sure. Right? Um, but really, if I can distill what I'm hearing from you, it, it's you needed the time to develop the relationships, not just with the guests, to bring them back because 80% of our revenue comes from 20% of our guests, but you need time to find that 20% and, to, sure. and to develop those relationships that bring them back. And that doesn't happen overnight, which is why it's so important to have a runway. Did you guys even have like, like, I mean, I know that you guys, you said when you opened, you didn't have, like you literally didn't have all the money, even right. in the bank that you needed yet. But like, these are things that if you, if you can get an extra a hundred thousand dollars, say you're, you know, if, that, if you're fortunate enough to do that, you might you're going to burn through that hundred thousand dollars. That operation, 
that operating capital. The biggest reason why restaurants fail is because they, when they open is because they don't have the operating capital to get started. They don't have that runway to, to develop those relationships, to bring, not just with your consumer, but to build your team. And it takes time to do that. And it, what I'm hearing is you, you just started building relationships, not just with your, your, your guests, but also with the people that came to work for you. And you started leveraging what they brought to the table and you started seeing their value and letting them, bring their value and, 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 sh- and like add their value to the pot. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to guess in days what our runway was at its shortest? A week, seven days, six, six. I was close. <laughs> and I made a promise with myself that when it was five, I was going to tell everyone. Yeah. But it was six and then eventually it was seven and then it was eight. And now it's quite a bit longer. Yeah. Um, I take pride in that. I've never calculated the number yeah, and I take pride sleeping at night knowing yeah. I don't know what that number is. But it is a testament to your ability to do the job in your, in your natural skill set, right? Yeah. Not everybody has what you have and they won't, they wouldn't be able to execute it. Of um, course. Yeah. So continuing on this idea, like even looking back before we move forward, anything that happened during this first year um, to, to get you to that point where your team's contributing and, and you're finding your groove and, and you're building relationships with guests that you would have done differently. I think the thing I would have done differently is that I would have been, I would have had more money. First of all, that's the easiest one to say is I would have had more money because we didn't know what it was really going to cost. We didn't know how slow we were really going to be when we opened. And I wish there's a lot of stress that we bore because we didn't go into it prepared. Just like going on a hike with no water. You can, you might get to the end of the hike, but man, you are going to suffer. Knowing, do you have a picture of what preparedness looks like now? That can you paint that picture of what you would have ideally would have liked it to look like? I think you need to be able to write a good performa, you know, if for your business, and figure out what it's really going to cost. That was another thing that we didn't do as effectively because we didn't really know, and unfortunately, that's a really hard thing to learn without having done it. Servers and cooks don't look over P&Ls and get taught how to actually use them and understand them. And so preparedness really looks at so trying to get as much earlier? data uh, in terms of showing our P&Ls yeah. to those people. And P&L, yeah. Like we talk like about what? our sales figures with all of our teams yeah. because those are the things they can more generally track. We yeah. also talk about you know inventory expenses and things like that to try to move those goals forward where everybody understands where we're going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we don't go over all of our financial data with the teams because so much of it isn't stuff that they can really affect, which is why I love focusing on revenue because that's a top line number everyone can see in the computer anytime they want. And that's something that they can help push forward. And I do, I do also wish what we'd done differently was figuring out how to market the restaurant. We were nobodies from nowhere doing something really different and we were basically just waiting on enough people to come through and tell enough other people before we went out of business and that is just not a marketing plan (laughs) and if your marketing plan i tell people now if your marketing plan is we're going to post on instagram you don't have a marketing plan so what was your like what is your marketing plan today or what would your marketing plan been knowing what you know now doing what you do now oh well the biggest benefit is because we're bigger you know if we go to open another restaurant 
we do have clout, which is going to attract teams, right? We became really good at selecting people. Now, not every person we hired was great. And sometimes you got to hire somebody and you just, you you just got to get a host. Yeah. But I would say we've kind of got the clout now where we can attract some people and get some marketing. But one thing that's been critical to our messaging the whole time is to make it feel like an extension of the dining room. When you go through our Instagram pages, you'll see profiles on our people. You'll see us talking about, hey, here's this ingredient and here's what's so cool about this ingredient and here's why we built a dish around it. Because those are the conversations we have every day. And that's what makes our social media engagement really high. And we're also just very willing to talk to the press. We'll give you recipes for things. We'll talk to you about what we're doing. We're just so, we love what we're doing. And it helps make people feel like they're a part of it. And we just didn't know how to do it and didn't have time to do it. Mm -hmm. One of the best things about where we are as a company right now is as I'm able to pull away from service, I can do things that I never had the opportunity to do before. So many times it feels that restaurateurs get to the point I'm at right now and say, great, I'm handing it off. I've done the task. I'm going to shift into third gear and write it out. And I think that one is just completely wrong because that's finally your opportunity. I feel that now I'm positioned to do what I'm really the best at doing, which is working with the creative teams, which is developing our relationship with the public and doing that marketing and kind of plotting what our next steps are going to be so that our teams can graduate into those roles. And I can only do that now that I don't have to carry every plate, that I don't have to go wash dishes because our dishwasher didn't show up. So here we are, uh, I guess it would be four years later from the point we've most recently spoke about 2019. We're now in 20 or three and a half years, right? Um, 2020 was a shit show. Well, Uh, right. When I say I'm in 19 feeling so confident, we hit January. I go on vacation and I think, man, we're doing it. Yeah. 2020 is going to be the best year of my my life. I moved to Austin, Texas January 1st and said (laughs) the same damn thing to myself. Yeah. But we all know how that ended. Right. Uh, So, I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about how you survived the pandemic. Sure. um, Because I think that was, hopefully none of us have to go through that again. The lessons we learned from that. Did it galvanize you? Did you, are you better now? Like what's, what's different about your business now because of that? I just really want to focus the rest of our conversation on what is your restaurant group now? Is there a father sure. company or are you just... What, uh, so Walkabout Hospitality Group okay. is the company that owns it. Walkabout? Yep, Walkabout. Okay. Got it. Um, which kind of refers to the trip that I went on to kind of heal. Nick and I went to Big Bend National Park on a trip, no phones. We're going to go out in the desert and decide if we When we're, did this happen? This happened in 2018. Okay. Uh, Easter. Got it. Because we said, we're going to go to the desert. And when we come back, we're going to know if we're... So this is before you opened. This is before we opened. This was the trip where we decided if we were really going to do it. Got it. Because we knew this would change the rest of our lives. And we're going to spend some time just reflecting together in the desert about if this is the right thing to do. And anyway, so that's why it's called that. But COVID was... Ended up being amazing for me in two ways. It was really horrible in every other way. But... (laughs) What was great about it was one, I became so much more grateful for the company because we shifted to meal kits immediately, literally immediately. Our last service was on a Thursday and we were a meal kit company on Friday morning. We built the website overnight. 
Now, did you retain that element of your business or did you drop it? Uh, we've dropped it now okay. because pretty much everybody who was eating our meal kits said we'd much rather just eat at the restaurant. <laughs> so we, we've dropped that business, um, but we transitioned and our team was incredibly supportive of it. We gave as many hours as we possibly could to as many people as we could and they just kept showing up. When we did reopen, every single person I called and said, hey, we're going to reopen. Do you want to come back? They said, yes. I'm not going to be putting in notice at Kroger. I will be there tomorrow. (laughs) And so that was really cool. And to have people just coming back really passionate, that felt so great. To see the number of people being as supportive as they were of Rye to keep us open, our meal kits were really successful. People loved them. We were selling cocktail kits. People were showing up that I knew had alternatives that I knew didn't need to be buying from us for the third time this week, but they were doing it because they knew if they didn't spend money at their favorite restaurants, those restaurants wouldn't survive. Yeah. They wouldn't have anywhere to go once things were better. Exactly. Yeah. So th- this is the first thing that I'm distilling. The first thing is you have yeah. appreciation for your company. So grateful. When you say company, you're talking about your guests and the people that you employ. You of know? course. Yeah. Um, what's the second thing? The second thing is it actually made our expansion to Dallas possible at all. So when did Rye Dallas open where we are? It today? opened July 7th of 2021. Okay. July 7th. So um, exactly almost uh, three years after you opened your first location. Yeah, exactly. So um, what? how did this become a possibility for you? How did you find the second location? So two things happened. Because people were so supportive of our meal kit program, we had the PPP money and we hadn't needed to use it to keep the company alive, which meant we could use some of that money to expand. Got it. And then secondarily, there was so much real estate that just became available overnight. the restaurants that failed. Exactly. And restaurant real estate, there are actually two markets. There's the one that the public knows about and there's the stuff that's getting traded by but all the insiders. Yeah. Like they're your friends who are like, I'm thinking about. So you know about this availability when they're thinking about it. Right. You know you about it. You can be it. someone's exit strategy. Well, and every landlord wants to give their restaurant to somebody who's already successful in restaurants. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're betting. Exactly. And, you know, yes, we did have one restaurant, but everyone said, oh, it's in the suburbs. And, oh, it's only 13 tables. And, oh, it's kind of quirky. You have a dish called Release the Quacken. Nobody wants to eat there. And so a lot of landlords in Dallas would not have taken us seriously without the pandemic. And I know that because a lot of them didn't take us seriously even after the pandemic. The real benefit that we had was there was prime real estate and we were willing to bet everything that we could succeed. We were willing to bet everything that the pandemic's going to end. And when it ends, there are still going to be restaurants and we're going to be one of them. And so that's how we ended up in a fantastic location. We were able to put rye right here. And then Apothecary was this project we wanted to build if someday we had a space for it. And the space next to rye was also for lease. So we just kind of came down here and bet the house that we could make it work. And thank God we did. So Apothecary and rye, Dallas, opened at the same time? Apothecary July 7th and six weeks later, the Rye Dallas opened. Okay. Um, so now going from, they say, you know, 
figuring out one restaurant, that's a challenge. Getting to the second one get, makes things a little bit more difficult because you have to split yourself up. But that third restaurant, that's when shit really hits the fan. Um, did you find that to be the case? Was it a challenge? Yeah, I thought zero to one was going to be the hardest. Going from one to three was in uh, a month <laughs> yeah was insane it was yeah. insane how so what did like like what, what was the evolution like how did you how did you accomplish this you know i i spoke earlier about saying these things just kind of they find us the right things seem to find us because we're always looking and we know how to say no just because something is a great opportunity doesn't mean it's not a great opportunity for you and if you're doing your job right you'll have many great opportunities and so we kind of came down here and just like it did in McKinney, we said, you know, this neighborhood has a great feel. This space. It does have a great feel yeah. too. I love this neighborhood. Lower Greenville's an awesome feel. Yeah. And we think that this neighborhood, just the people who are in this neighborhood will appreciate this kind of work. The space feels right. It's the right size. It's just like in McKinney, it was, this is probably more, a little bit more than we should sign up for. But we think if we dig deep, we can do it. We had to dig really deep. But- it kind of just came together. The fact that we'd already been talking about opening up a cocktail lounge because Rye is so food focused and has a great cocktail program, we said we'd love the opportunity to flip it and do something that's 100% cocktail based and then have some great food while you're there. And the fact that then a bar, there was already a built out bar that was really small and cozy. In Rye or Apothecary? Next door, in Got Apothecary. It. So it had been a bar beforehand. Got it. And so we said, well, this is perfect for Rye and there happens to be a bar next door, how can we not open up this bar that we've been talking about for a year? Mm. And so it just was kind of those factors of... Perfect storm. We can't say no to this. Yeah. And now I lost weight, stressing about if this goes down, the whole company goes down. Yeah. Uh, You can basically tell the health of the company by how not healthy I'm starting to look. (laughs) Uh, But it's really great that it kind of came together and that our team said, we're going to do this and we're going to make it happen because it was so difficult on everyone yeah. because we also went into this project undercapitalized. Mm-hmm. We were coming out of COVID. You think same I could investors? raise money? Yeah, same investors. Okay. But my ability to raise money in you know, November- That's of, a hard sell. Yeah, we signed this <laughs> lease November 2020. Yeah. So there was no, I wasn't going to be able to go raise money because yeah. we, we signed this lease when Texas was still at 50% capacity. Well- yeah, I was going to say it helps that you did it in Texas, which is one of the, the states that was the first to like loosen up. So you sure. were able to get back full pace much faster than other states. I Absolutely. think you guys are full, full open by 21. In 21, you're... Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we became 100% capacity, I think, in maybe May of okay. 21. Okay. Um, so you really just had like, what, five months where you really had to get by with 50%. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of forgiveness and a lot of understanding from landlords at this time too, maybe. Yeah, people were understanding, you know, when we had that relationship that we started to build with them of, we are going to do something really great and we're willing to sign this long-term lease because we're just long-term people. Mm-hmm. And so they took a chance on us, these guys from the suburbs who, well, they have won. Mm-hmm. And I think if our team hadn't been bold enough to take that, And then followed through with the work it required because unlike McKinney where nobody would come to the restaurant and that was our struggle, when we opened up here, everyone came. Mm. And that was a completely different problem and in a lot of ways a better problem but 
more stressful. So why did everybody come here? What happened? What was different about? Is it because the brand or the the concept? Do you think was it a better? Fit? I mean, listening to what the concept is, being here, seeing what you are, never being in McKinley, but hearing what you said about it, I, I do feel like it is more appropriate here. Is that around to say? So yeah, Dallas. It's a better fit for Dallas. Of yeah. course, there's more competition in Dallas. I think there was that two things. There's also Dallas is famous for everyone wants to go to the new place. Mm. And so in Dallas, it's if you market your company right, you can definitely be busy for three months. It's that trough that scares everyone of where did everyone go because you basically have to have the staff to manage being packed and then you know you're going to die. So how do you manage that process, which we weren't prepared for? Fortunately, we had the right staffing for the trough because we never had had the staffing for the bump. But I think it was a couple things. One, we were new. Two, we were in this great neighborhood. When we opened up Apothecary, we were serving cocktails that were just some things no one had ever seen before. Yeah. We had a Cacio Pepe cocktail. We had a- so you don't have a cocktail like in the, the the trilogy of you, um, Nick and Taylor. There isn't a cocktail a mixologist yet. So Is I that you yeah. So I had done okay. cocktail bartending, Got it. and that was actually also the last job I'd had before we left for Rye. Yeah. A lot of that knowledge came from us developing it in house, uh, saying we're going to be a cocktail focused restaurant. We're going to be a liquor focused restaurant. We're not, we, we like wine. We all drink wine. In fact, sometimes we drink a lot more wine than spirits because our life is spirits. Mm-hmm. But we're really passionate about these cocktails. And so we started to build all this knowledge. So yes, when we opened Apothecary, we hadn't worked at some of the highest end cocktail bars, but we had spent three years in our concept getting better mm. and learning. And the whole reason we wanted to open it was we were starting to create cocktails that weren't a great fit for rye we knew that we couldn't serve these cocktails at Rye. And so we said, well, we got to open up someplace new. And then we were able to acquire some really talented people. Uh, there's a guy, Greg, who's the general manager. You know, he had come from some of the best cocktail bars in the city. And so we were able to start acquiring people because when we sat down with them and said, okay, here's what Apothecary is going to be. And they said, oh, okay, yes, I want to be involved that in that. What was Apothe- Apothecary going to be? Our goal... Or what is it? What is Apothecary? Our goal was to open up a place where we question what is a cocktail and what should a cocktail be. Can a cocktail be a different texture? Can it have different ingredients? How can we bend at every point all of our assumptions about what we're supposed to be making in a cocktail bar? The biggest way that we've done that is through our use of ingredients and really relying on actually our chef-driven background. You see a lot of food getting used. You see a lot of techniques in jellification and clarification and how we use our centrifuge and how we use liquid nitrogen. All of these techniques actually come from the kitchen and we're just applying those to cocktails because at the end of the day, cooking and cocktail making is only the combination of flavor. And so it's really rewarding to me to say, hey, have you ever tried our pozole soup cocktail? People say, what? Yeah, it tastes like Spicy green chili soup. So what le- what enables you to keep up this level of creativity? How do you do that? How do how where does this creativity come from? It comes for me personally from a total obsession. I am reading everywhere. I'm I go through about thirty five books a year, plus whatever other cookbooks I happen to thumb through or whatever articles or podcasts that I'm digesting. 
for the team. Sometimes they get it from their travels or they get it other places. But what makes it possible is that we all get together and we sit at one table. Bingo. And we pitch all of our ideas. The meeting of minds. Man. Yeah. And it, it, the power, how many, how many people sit at the table? Uh, the meetings generally end up having somewhere between four and eight people. But the power of four to eight people, it's, it's potential energy. Your brain is a battery. And if you can connect that battery to seven other brains, then you have the energy of seven brains. And you start feeding off of each other. One idea sparks, sparks another idea. And you, you come to like this place that you can never get to on your own by having that, that 7x power, right? Oh, absolutely. And what's really great is we're always in these dialogues. We're always sending people things that we've seen or what we're doing. You know, we have these long group chains where we discuss these things. But when we sit down, what happens so much of the time is your dish sounds really cool, but actually that garnish is going to taste better on your dish than your garnish. And it's going to taste better on that dish than the dish that she just pitched. And so it's really the combination and it's a huge credit to our team of not having that arrogance that so often comes with the creative process. How do you achieve that level of not, like how do you, what is it that's unique about your business that that arrogance can't get in there? I think our interviews are very extensive. I mean, if you want a management position here, your interview can be two hours long mm. and that won't be the first, that won't be the only meeting that we have. You're going to meet several people. You're going to have a lot of conversations and it's just very in-depth where we are going to grill you for your knowledge. We're going to explain how our culture works. We're going to talk to every single one of your references, especially if you've worked in Dallas. We're going to call the people you didn't write down and ask them what you're like. And we just really sit with people and say, if you come here, you're going to be a part of this creative process. But these are the rules. It's not about you. It doesn't say Tanner Agar on the menu because it's not about Tanner either. If it was, my motorcycle would be parked in the dining room. <laughs> It's about the guest experience. It's about creating something together. And if you are going to be a prima donna about how this works, well, I say that to people in the interviews. I said that to Taylor when we started. I said, you're going to be the chef of the restaurant, but we are going to define this together. And if you're not on board, if you need to be right all the time, don't come because I will fire you Mm. immediately. I don't Mm. care that we used to be friends. I'm responsible to a whole group of people. And I will fire you if you make me. And the biggest way to get me to fire you is to be a dick. I'm loving that I'm, your your employees are over your shoulder, <laughs> giggling at what you're saying right now. But it, I mean, I love that man. It's powerful shit. It really yeah. is. And it's it's the it's this knowing that you're only as good as the collective. And yeah. it's not just one person, but it, but also creating creating a business that depends on the collective. And not just one person is a great security. It provides great security because if that one person tomorrow decides that they don't want to be here, then you put all of your eggs in that one basket. But if you if your business depends on the culture that you created of collective minds, and it's not about one person, but but it's about all of us. And it's not just what you say; it's what you're doing because now you have four partners. You also brought on. Uh, so it was Taylor for, and Ashley. Yeah, so Taylor and Ashley. So you have four partners, um, and I think that. I mean, I do think that this, there's this idea like of, of of spreading out the wealth, and maybe the first five years might be tough. Like maybe it might take four, three or four years for you to make more than the server. Sure. But how much further are you going to go? How much opportunity 
are you going to create for yourself when you sacrifice for others? And it happens that that sacrifice, if you're willing to sacrifice, I think it's like it's like lube for like speeding things up to, to get to those those next levels because, you know, we're going there together and you can lean on other people. And now you have the strengths of the collective. Like like what's going through your mind? Oh, absolutely. And I think the opportunity also comes to start to do other things. I can now turn to our team and say, hey, I'm handing the restaurant off and I'm not downshifting like other people are because I also view that that is just a complete spit in the face of your team because you're turning back on your values of we're going to be here and we're going to raise the bar because you guys have been effective. I'm now going to step back, which means you can grow in your roles. You can take charge and you can grow your teams, right? A good manager is a gardener and you water your garden and you watch it grow. And so as they can do that, then I say, great, I'm going to go have a meeting with some landlords or some development groups or what, whatever. And then I can come back to the team and say, you've been so effective at your job. Would you like to take over the new restaurant and be the general manager there? Mm. Would you, sous chef, want the opportunity to be the head chef of this restaurant because your chef is actually going to be coming on the new project? And everybody can grow. Mm-hmm. Because if you do it right, then people don't have to leave the company. That's something that's so difficult about one-off restaurants where you're the chef. You will always be training up these people underneath you because they're never going to get the chef job that's your job. Yeah, you're, they're there to say that they were there or right. they, that, so they can go. Right. And like, it's a broken model. You know, it's, it's, it sounds exhausting. Yeah. I cannot stand on that pass and do that for every person every night for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So when you start a restaurant, you need to think about what's your timeline, what's your lifespan on able to do it. You see so many restaurants that are great close around that kind of three year mark. Cause I think that's when people just go, I'm tired. I said no to too many things. I've, I've burned myself out. And that was kind of our way to make sure that we protected ourselves from that process is I'm going to build my team. I'm going to grow and then my team's going to grow and they're going to have to build their team. But now they're building it. They're growing their careers. They're building their platforms. And what an amazing place we're in, not only because the company's bigger, that's good, but also just for me personally of, I now have that golden job of I'm in the restaurant business doing something I deeply love, but I don't necessarily have to be on the floor every night because I don't have a team. Yeah. My team is building a team. Yeah. You still own your business. Your business doesn't own you. Exactly. Yeah. And it has owned me (laughs) for a long time. Uh, But I think it's it's good going into it knowing that you're going to have to sacrifice for at least a year or two. It's going to take time. And and, of course you have to put that, you got to lean into it. You got to, you got to get it to a a place where you can hand it off. Right. And that does not happen overnight. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, like what happened in 2021. So you sure. got to the point you have two rise, uh, one in McKinney, one in Dallas, and right next door. Do you stare? Do you share the same kitchen? Yeah. With so a, we connected the kitchens. Okay. Apothecary. I don't know why I'm. You just got it. Apothecary. Yeah. Apothecary. Thank you. <laughs> um, I struggle with that. It's okay. Uh, so what what happened? When, when like there was a fire? Um, we don't need to get into the details of what exactly happened. So the, the fire, fire was 22. Okay. Yeah. So about six months ago. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So where was the business there? Like where like where were your margins? Like were you doing good? Were you making money? Were like how how healthy was the business at this point? So 
we've been really fortunate in that our team does a good job of transforming things that don't cost a lot into something really new and valuable for the guest. And that's kind of where we're able to extract our margin, i.e., can we take these spirits and by infusing them or whatever other process of transformation the cocktail is going to change, can we take a gin, which wasn't the most expensive gin out there, and make a cocktail that's fantastic out of it? Mm-hmm. And so, so the you, creativity you, of our team allows us to charge the price point that makes our margin possible. Okay. And so in so many ways, we've run on those really good margins in terms of kind of gross. In your, in your opinion? I would say if you can keep alcohol below 20 and you can keep food at 28, then you're in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Our, but our profits have never been huge because it's our mission to constantly reinvest. You know, one of the reasons you don't want to go in undercapitalized is then all that money that you could have been getting potentially for yourself or for your staff, you have to spend fixing all the cheap, crappy refrigerators that you bought because you didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time we bought a brand new fridge. I was so proud of it. It was $3,000. It was amazing. I was so proud of it. It then burned in the fire, which was like this emotional moment for me. Like, Did you have it insured? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So the restaurant was insured. Of course, the insurance process is tedious tedious and... Slimy and filthy and corrupt and yeah, I think I'm still in those negotiations, so I can't say anything specifically. But we're working through that. It's obviously really difficult. I would say you should definitely make sure your fire policy is fireproof. Yeah, when you have fire that comes that's in the building, you want to make sure that yeah. Well, and the fire we didn't start the fire. Yeah. Oh, we didn't start the fire. No, we um the <laughs> fire started the fire. in the alley behind our restaurant, okay. and then it burned into the restaurant. Okay. So it's kind of a weird legal thing that we don't need to go into, but yeah. the it, it's just always been our policy of like we're going to pour the money back in, and so we've bought lots of new equipment, we've put up new shelving, we've given a raise to everybody. We actually just started providing health insurance and paid time off to every single employee. Well, I, that was something I knew we were going to end up talking about. Yeah, I was hoping we would get there. So was that what's what kicked that off? Was that because of the fire? Uh, it's not because of the fire. We talked about doing this five years ago. Because okay. we said, how are we going to make restaurants that succeed? And how are we going to do something different? We said, it's going to be our people. As I mentioned earlier, it's going to be our people. That is our competitive advantage is we have better people than you and they're doing better things than you. You random restaurant that yeah. isn't, you know, you. Yeah. But You're only as good as the people you attract. 100%. 100%. Yeah. That's always been the mission. So it's something we always wanted to offer. And it was really this year that we felt we were able to do it. Uh, we did add a 3% health insurance and paid time off and benefits charged to all of our tabs. People can remove it. If they ask to take it off, we do. But we added that. There isn't a, uh, a service charge, is there? No. Okay. So it's just, a, so it's, you accept tips. Yep. Um, there's a 3% charge to help you take care of your employees. Basically. Exactly. Got it. And this is a thing, I'm sure for many of your listeners, they'll say, well, yeah, I live in San Francisco. Everyone does that. Who cares? But people cared a lot in Dallas, it turned out. We're the first people we know of in DFW to use this model. And we said, well, this is a way for us to be the most transparent with the guests. Because if I just raise the prices, people don't necessarily know where that goes. If I'm going to tell you about farms and well, tell you- That was going to be one of my questions to you is why not just 
freaking charge what you need to charge. Sure. The consumer doesn't fucking, part of my language, need to know how you're running your business in the back end. They just need to know this is what it costs. And there's some weird culture in the industry where we're so afraid to offend the people who come to our restaurant with the, the cost that it takes to do it well and to take care of people. I think the issue isn't within the industry. It's with the, within the culture of America, if I'm being honest, with the, the consumer. Um, but I think it's our responsibility to educate the consumer and saying, listen, we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner and we need to like build a bridge out of this corner so we can take care of our people. You know? Sure. And the public, it's just very interesting the relationship you'll build with the public. One guy who'd never even been here wrote us a one-star review about our policy and about how terrible it was because we're servants. That's a lit- real thing. I can show you all caps calling us servants about how this policy shouldn't exist. And so, you know what? It wouldn't have been a news story. Nobody would have been mad if we'd raised our prices 5% and just kept all the money for ourselves. Yeah. However, we felt that when you spend a dollar, that's your vote for the world you want to be, or the world you want to have. And for us, we tell you about the farms that we buy from. We show you our people. This is our way to be forthright with the public and say, hey, when you're coming here, what you're supporting is these things. And to also, it has definitely created a conversation in the city. I've talked to lots of other restaurateurs about it now who said, how is this going? Are you glad you did this? And I say, I am glad I did it because by putting that fee there, the menu also has a QR code where you can visit our website. It shows all the benefits that we provide as a company. That's our public declaration of, I'm not going to say we're doing something. Oh, we provide benefits now. No, you can read what the benefits are and you can walk in and you can talk to a server and say, hey, do you have health insurance through the company? Yep, 100%. And that's just a really cool thing to be able to have, have is just the, the transparency and if you don't want to support it, you don't have to come here. If you don't want to support it, you can ask us to take it off of your bill. But for the people who do support it, it engages that conversation of why are so many people so surprised that they should be that they would be paying for health insurance when you pay for health insurance every time you buy something from a company, whether they told you the listed fee or whether they buried it in the price. Yeah, any transaction you make that's a fortune, like whatever corporation, when it, if you buy a phone, if you buy pants, if you buy shoes, if you buy literally anything that's yeah. not food, they bake that cost into the price of the product. You're paying for it. But when the restaurant industry does that, it's like this is way too expensive, you know. Like, like what's the like? You're screwing me. You're like, what? What? I don't understand it. It's weird. But I think we did it to ourselves, which is the one pill the industry has to swallow. If we're gonna get it, because we we constantly are, are trying to beat the person down the street on price, and we got to this point where we had to we 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 are paying the price for it because of our our competition with each other. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Yeah. And you see that too with the cost of wages. Mm-hmm. You know the. If the cost of working, in, if the amount you got paid in a restaurant hasn't gone up significantly, then that would generally follow that the cost of eating in a restaurant hasn't gone up significantly. Yeah. And that could be part of the reason that we are eating in restaurants way more than our grandparents were. Yeah. My grandmother didn't go to a restaurant three days a week. No, she went home and she cooked because she was born in the 1920s. Yeah. And well, so... there's a there, Sorry, finish that. Oh, I was just going to say that's another area where... The wages are only going to go up if the restaurants pay it and the public has to understand that that's part of it. 
Yeah. So that is, I think, a key to the puzzle is the consumer needs to understand. And the only way they're going to understand, they're not going to go out and do the research on their own to discover that the restaurant industry model is broken. We have to educate no, them. definitely not. Like, we have to say, like, we fucked up over the past 60 years, and we're in the situation, we need to make it better because your your demand of us is higher than it's ever been as far as quality and, and the experience because – you know, if we're going to deliver that, we can't do it alone, and we need to take care of our people. We need to attract good people, and the only way we can attract good people is if they feel like they have security, and an opportunity, and they're growing personally, and they're finding their purpose in life, and that takes money, for sure. Yeah, I'm really fortunate to work in an environment with a group of people who all believe in what we're doing, who want to create this thing. There are jobs which are easier, which pay better than working here, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, man, we all got to get paid. And you should be able to have a good life if you're a professional in a job. And I don't view this as being any less professional than if I was a doctor or a lawyer. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for 15 years. You can have a doctor who doesn't have 15 years of experience. And did they work harder? Or did they just study different material? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Uh, the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. You've definitely inspired us with your story, opening a restaurant at the age of 24, 25 years old, uh, you know, sacrificing and uh, just pushing the envelope, living on that line, just, of just barely you know, having what you need to, to continue forward. And, and that's so inspiring. Thank and you. We're, we're empowered by your, your willingness to take a risk, to do the right thing for your people, right? And to show people that if you do the right thing by others, it will come back around and they'll take care of you. But as, on this note of transformation, we, we were kind of starting to talk, to talk about how the industry has to transform mm-hmm. to move forward. What else does the industry need to do to, to move into the future uh, better? I think restaurateurs need to look to their people for what the growth is going to look like. The more people need to be sitting in these conversations yeah, at that the mean? table. I don't okay. I think there's just there are too many restaurants which are run by the exact same person okay. functionally. Right? They're they're not different enough. And I think the food culture only becomes more interesting the more expansive it has the opportunity to be. And people complain that restaurants are all the same, but then they go to all the same restaurants. Mm. That's one of the things I would love to see the public doing is saying, hey, we're going to have date night, but date night doesn't have to mean fancy. Why don't we chase flavor? Why don't we chase narrative? Why don't we go to these little tiny Please, I don't want to say hole in the wall in any kind of derogatory way, but why don't we go to these places that are a little small and a little bit underfunded and maybe a little bit out there? Because that's what Rye was, and it was people making that choice to support this thing that was a little different that created all of our success because the guests made us successful. People say that to me like, oh, you're successful. You you made that. No, the guests made it because they're the only ones who have the power. And I would love to see that kind of exploration and that support. And then these big time people with all this money who build these restaurants with a two, two and a half million dollar budget saying, Hey, why don't I trust that guy that I met from Cambodia who's cooking something different? And it's kind of that combo because that's how we're going to end up with something great. That's what makes cities really big cities like New York. So fun to eat in is there are so many voices 
And I'd love to see that proliferate across the organi- or across the country. Yeah. So I think we, you, that was an awesome tear, by the way. I love what you just dropped on us. Um, when you, it started with, I think, I can't remember the words you used, but we got to look for opportunity with within the restaurant. Is it within the people or what did you say? Yeah, within the people. Do you have people here? We have Jamaican food on our menu right now because we have a Jamaican guy okay. standing on the line. So I heard that and, it, and I, I was trying I, and it, I hung on to that while you were going on because I wanted to bring it back to the surface. And when I heard that, what went to my mind is the opportunity isn't out there. You can't chase, you know, I think a lot of restaurateurs are, are, are guilty of chasing trends, uh, chasing whatever, like trying to predict where, what the people want. But what I loved about what you said is the opportunity is who is in my, who's under this roof? What do they, what skills and strengths and passions and talents do they bring to the table? The opportunity, it's already in your house. You just have to go mining. And, and is, am I on the right vein here? For sure. So one place people don't mind, and I don't understand why, is the servers. Mm. So many restaurants, the chef makes a thing, and then they put it out in the dining room and tell people, here's what it is. Every dish that we roll out, I ask the servers, what do you think we should charge for this? I don't, I don't add it up in Excel. I ask them, what do you think we can charge for this? If they don't think that they can sell it for the price point we need to, I'm not putting it on the menu. Yeah. I also ask them, hey, what are the server, what are they saying to you? Oh, well, they wish we had an amuse-bouche that was vegan. Oh, okay. That wouldn't have occurred to me, but they know it. And why are you not taking all that data that's sitting with the servers? Chefs are really guilty of that, of thinking that the kitchen is this palace and no one who isn't in an apron and a jacket deserves to be inside of it. That is absolutely ridiculous because the people who know your guests better than anyone are the servers. Mm -hmm. They're not the cooks. And most of the time they're not the owners. So what does mining an individual look like? Yeah. Well, that sounds weird now when I (laughs) think of it that way. Um, It's really so easy. You have to have an environment where people feel that it's okay to be open with you because if your team's not coming to you with things that they don't think are right, if they're not saying, hey, this dish is just not really working, yeah. then you don't have a good environment. You got to create a safe space. And I want to give a little pitch, to not a pitch, but a plug or uh, Rudy Mick teaches safe space. Um, he, that guy's probably forgotten more than most people have ever learned in the restaurant industry. And he, he speaks about this, but keep going. If you want to learn more about how to create that safe space, you can Perfect. do some, not, not you, the listeners. Yeah, no, I understand. Know, and yeah. you, if you want to check it sure, out. Sure, I will. If you guys want to do some follow-up, I, I highly recommend reaching out to Rudy. He's very knowledgeable on this, but keep going. Well, just, you, space. You, know that your, you know that your culture and feedback loop is healthy when people are coming to you with honest feedback about what they think needs to be improved. Because that doesn't mean it's negative. It means that that person's bought in. No one who doesn't care goes to their boss to say, hey, we should fix something. And if you're not listening and implementing those things, they're going to stop telling you Mm -hmm. and you're going to stop having that data and you're going to be standing in your dead restaurant asking what happened. Mm -hmm. But what happened is you ignored all the people who tried to tell you how to make it better. Because like I said, I just go to the servers and ask, hey, we're going to change up the menu. What are some dishes that you think the guests are ready to see go? Or they'll say, no, you you can't take the Nepalis off the menu. And Oh, okay, why? We've had it forever. Because that's, I sell that dish because I say, have you ever eaten cactus before? Oh, well, it's indigenous to Texas. It's absolutely delicious. And they tell the story of the cactus and why we serve the cactus. And then everyone 
And they said, I, I use that dish to get people to buy into our vision. Wow. Okay, I guess cactus is staying on the menu. Yeah. How do you feel about the duck? And, you know, that, <laughs> that gives us the opportunity to get that feedback because 95% of the guest experience from a, per, from a human perspective is only going to be the server. If I'm the manager and I'm walking the floor, I'll stop by and I talk to the tables. Hey, has everything been fantastic for you tonight? I always ask a leading question because then you have to either have to admit it was fantastic or they look at me and go, uh, no. Go, Why don't you say, okay, has everything been okay tonight? Why would I want to eat at an okay <laughs> restaurant? Is that who you want? Do you want to be okay? this conversation earlier today. Um, Is this an okay podcast? Well, <laughs> I hope it's better than okay. Uh, we were in town because um, our current sponsor, Restaurant Assistance Pro, is hosting their mastermind, and we're talking about teaching hospitality. And this was, mm-hmm. this came up in today's conversation. Fred Langley was explaining, like, you are aiming for fantastic. So if it's not meaning that then that's what you want to know. You gotta it's 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 you don't want to suggest that it's just okay. Of course not. But keep going. That makes no sense. Yeah. And the language we use is so important. I've also banned the phrase, are you working on that? Absolutely not. You will never say that. Yeah. We have like a whole it's list of some things that you work. just Yeah, you don't you don't get to say that here. Yeah. Okay. And it just gives us that contact point. But some guests, they don't really some guests want the dinner and a show. They want to talk, they want to hear the stories. And some people want to have dinner and just Our number one thing when we ask you on the phone, oh, are you celebrating anything for your reservation? Yes, I won't have my kids. That's number one. That beats out birthdays and anniversaries combined. Mm -hmm. So some people want to talk to each other. And that means that even if I stop by your table and say I touched every table, maybe I only touched your table for 40 seconds. Has everything been fantastic? Yes, it's good, sir. And they start their conversation. So if I don't listen to the server and empower the server... I am losing all of that potential data and inherently making my restaurant worse. Yeah. Because if you're not growing, you must be dying. Yes. Man, Tanner, I'm loving today's conversation, dude. This is a lot of fun. I'm looking at the clock. We're at two hours and 10 minutes. Oh, man. It goes by fast. It does. It does. But, you know, it's been a really great conversation. I would go three hours <laughs> if it was up to me. And I'm sure my editor, Jared, just cringed when Absolutely. I said that. I'll try to keep it under three hours, Jared. But, um, <laughs> Anything that hasn't come out that you want to make sure it comes out before we go to the speed round? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, my my whole thing is I'm just grateful to be here and I love our people. And yeah, I'm, I'm just really lucky to to be here and be surrounded by this kind of talent. And yeah. thank you so much to our guests who, you know, I hope when we share this, I hope many of them listen. And yeah. Because that... Behind the scenes, man. Yeah. I mean, between we were open and then 18 months later, COVID happened. And then we finally felt like we got our legs at, like put back together and then, and then one burned down. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who have been supporting, you know, ride, thank you so much. But 23 should be a really good year for us. There's only a natural, a natural disaster every two years at our company. So yeah, you should may- have a good four year run. Right. Like, I mean, your yeah. odds are good that it should be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should just, it should all be good from here. Yeah. Awesome. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to bust out a speed round recently on the show. You've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. 
Fred will be leading the training, supporting you in holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think excellence is the habit. Mm. You are what you do every day. And that's the secret is do the work every day. I love that. What is your biggest weakness? I can demand more than is necessary because I want to chase the perfection. And some days you need to understand people only have so much to give and knowing where that line lies is the secret to success. Yeah. I think it's like no one's ever going to be as passionate for your business as you. And I think it's important no. to swallow that. Like you can get them to be passionate, but to p- expect people to have your level of endurance for your vision, your baby, you have to realize that that's kind of a little You can push too hard. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? We ask knowledge-based questions to exhaustion. So we will ask you for all of your knowledge until you don't you are just exhausted what you know. And then we start asking your questions about how do you serve? How do you do this? Because we want to see that you deeply understand what's required and then we want to get to know you as a person. Okay. Because we expect that you we expect that you're a professional. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like a lot of what we hear on the show is we don't hire what you know, it's your attitude, but I think that if you're if you're chasing like if you want to be the best, you need both. You need both. Yeah. But we've hired people who didn't know too much. I mean, Heather, who I spoke of so highly earlier, her interview went really poorly and she didn't have some of the knowledge required to be on our floor. But you could tell that that bothered her. Mm. And when someone is bothered that they don't know, that means they're going to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way you can grow. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? Trying to hand off everything to the next group of people. How are you overcoming it? With a lot of conversations and accepting that some things are going to go wrong and you can only, some learning opportunities can only happen after the fact and you have to accept that and be willing to make those investments in your team. What is going to happen in the next 12 months to achieve this? I'm basically turning in my notice as a on-the-floor manager and saying, is there anything else that I can possibly do to support you? Fantastic. Then I will talk to you every single day in the morning about what happened last night to make sure we're as bulletproof as we can be. 
beautiful. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be? To respect the work that we're doing is the most important thing. So many people get to touch prep and tables and people and you have to respect the people around you enough to do it right every time because I can't watch everybody. And if you don't respect your team, we need you off. Share one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. So something that's common within the four walls of your businesses, your restaurants, your bars, but not standard throughout the industry. You're not allowed to hold a dirty dish in front of a guest. So everybody puts the dish behind their back because eye level for the guest turns out to be right about where you naturally hold something dirty. Yeah. So you tuck Especially up. Especially if it didn't come from their table. 100%. Oh, that's, oh, oh my God. I would lose my mind. Uh, and then you put it behind your back and the rest of the team is trained to pick up things that are standing behind the back. Yeah. So we do the behind the back pass, which allows us to clear tables more effectively and just creates a more seamless. I like that. Beautiful answer. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better business or rest or business owner or person? Uh, Dominique Crenn wrote a fantastic memoir about her career, Three Michelin Star Chef, uh, the first American woman to do it. Yeah. Uh, she's based in San Francisco. Her I, memoir is beautiful prose, and it's also a really great story. I almost had her on the show. It was during oh. uh, it was a, we it, it, like we were communicating. I was I don't make it out to San Francisco that often, and I, I can't remember what happened. But you are still absolutely on my radar, and I'm tempted to read your book before I. I get you on the show, but then I'm going to know your whole story and it's going to be like, I already know the answers to my questions. No, because but, the prose is really, I read pretty much every chef memoir that gets published. Yeah. She's a better writer than everyone else. Beautiful. I'll have to check that out. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? They don't let other people do the work without also making sure that they have the support. Mm. Lots of times you get two types of owners, the super controlling or the never around, never helping. And that delicate balance is not something I'd say I've really mastered, but supporting your team while allowing them to grow is I think the only way to grow. Um, What is one piece of technology you recently developed in, or not about develop, but um, adopted. You can tell it's at the end of my day. We've been going all, all, all morning. Um, what is one piece of a technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on your restaurant, communication, efficient, efficiency, uh, profitability, anything along these lines? We started plugging into all the work from home tools. So a lot of our manager meetings actually happen virtually. Okay. So we and our team can do them from home if they want to. Everything's based in the cloud. So we're trying to use all of those benefits that COVID has helped amplify for how to work not in a centralized location to make it a little bit easier for our managers to get some of that work-life balance. Okay. And how is this like really affecting your, your business and profitability? Or is it just streamlining process? I think it, it's definitely streamlining the process and it's making it easier for our managers to, hey, I got to go to the shop to get this thing fixed on my car. Oh, that's cool. Just join. Yeah, via Zoom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here. Um, is it, so is it, when you say cloud-based, are you just talking about video conference communication tools or are there other cloud-based tools? Yeah, uh, every single document that we generate lives on the cloud and everyone can access it. Is it just Google Docs? So uh, we use the Microsoft suite. And so everybody 
has a Windows laptop. Everybody is connected to Word and Excel. All of our recipes live in Excel, so you can easily go access one when you need it. And it just makes it really, it helps us be consistent. Where's the recipe for Bacoles? I don't know. I'll print you a new one. Got it. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Oh, boy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Well, firstly, I won't die because my team will live on. Legacy. And I will cheat them. I will cheat death. (laughs) Uh, I would say the three things hmm, would be... Drink deeply from books and other source of wisdom of people that are different than you. One. Two, be yourself because everyone else is already taken. Oscar Wilde. Two. And three, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I know. I would say three, remember that since you can't take it with you, you shouldn't leave anything on the table. I love it, man. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I know this was a kind of a shotgun wedding. We didn't even know we were going to be connecting <laughs> until like a couple of days ago. Yeah. We made it happen. Thank you so much for accommodating us. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I really let, I want the, the, Restaurant Unstoppable to be unique in the sense that I don't want to be the person that decides who gets to be made an example of. So who do you respect and admire right now in the industry? People who you look to and you go, man, they're doing it right. Like if they if they were a guest on the show, man, I would be listening because I want to know what the magic is. Who is that person or those people for you? Here in DFW? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, there's a chef. I love his name's Junior. We're friends. He's got a Brazilian restaurant that's not a Brazilian steakhouse. And they're doing some really cool work, kind of bending the way that that works. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you could get Jordi Roca, he's probably the greatest pastry chef in the world out of Spain. He's not in DFW, but... No, uh, I mean, I don't... We're, we go everywhere, man, so yeah. don't limit yourself. Yeah, El Salcarner, uh El Salar Can Roca is the name of his restaurant. He's so cool. Albert Adria, also in Spain. Uh, I know a lot of Spanish chefs since I got to work speak, with them. They speak English well? Yeah, they I'm, speak okay, English. Good, yeah. I'd be lost. But they're so cool. <laughs> Those guys are so cool. Um, Albert Adria is the brother of Fran Adria. Okay. Uh, Fran gets all the credit, but Albert was also there. So he's super cool. Um, if you could get those guys out of Spain, I would say other people that maybe I could help introduce you to. Um, I would say here in Dallas, there's a really cool restaurant, or a really cool cocktail bar named Jettison. I really love the work that they're doing. Um, and George is just a really nice guy. Awesome. All right. Look out. If you were just named, I can't remember everything that was just dropped <laughs> on me. We're coming after you. And uh, if we were inspired by today's story and uh, we want to maybe come work for you or yeah. maybe we have questions, follow-up questions for you, if you're willing to answer, what's the best way to connect? Uh, the best way would obviously be come in, eat here. Make sure that what we do connects with you because that's what matters at the start. Um, but if you, yeah, you want to hit us up, Instagram is kind of, that's our main platform. We try to focus on one so that we can do it effectively. I'm uh, Tagar Agar, so just like the seaweed, but with a T in front. And then apothecary underscore bar or ride out restaurant, that's where you can find us. Tanner, thank you so much, my friend. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Tanner Agar, for coming on and for just being a shining example of going above and beyond what's expected to deliver security and a better quality of life to our employees. And I think, you know, there's just so many different things uh, that people are doing to get creative, to get it, to think outside the box. And all of it's, I think, amazing. Anything to move in the right direction, I'm all for. And it's just an honor to share an example of what you're doing. And hopefully this inspires you guys out there to to show up better for your employees. And just also a truly inspiring story. You're a young dude, man. You got started early. You hit this industry hard and you're making shit happen. You took care of, you know, you took advantage of opportunity and uh, you're growing, dude. I'm excited to see where you're going to be in the next five years. Uh, So if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes, just like it, we need your support. There's a ton of ways you can support the show. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can come and hang out in restaurant stoppable network where we have ad free content. By the way, I make myself available regularly in the network and we're going to be doing a lot more demos product demos things like that uh, connecting you with my guests and honestly I'm, go- I'm going to work for you so who do you want to connect with who are past guests anything you guys want I will go to work for you but you have to let me know join the network shoot me a message just head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com and uh, where are we with Restaurant Unstoppable holy friggin moly uh you know, I'm a week now home from being a week and a half on the road. Got some amazing content in Dallas, and we did a little trip down to New York City. Those episodes will be airing soon. And <clears throat> we're about to depart for, not about to, but in the next two weeks, we're going to be headed to Miami. So if you know of people in Miami who are just killing it, people who you are inspired by, people, if they were a guest on the show tomorrow, you would be sure to tune in. Who are those people? Let us know. Shoot me an email, Eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. We're always looking for badasses to make an example of. Uh, and we're also trying to grow our YouTube channel. So maybe they're not a Restaurant Unstoppable uh, podcast guest, but maybe they're doing something cool. Maybe we can just bop in real quick and, uh, you know, video document whatever cool shit's happening in Miami, please let us know. Uh, I think that's it for now, but I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make the show possible. Thank you for Jared Parisi over at Sumadre Podcast for the copy and editing. Thank you to Sam Hall over at Sav and Sam for the videography and social. It takes an army. I'm so grateful for mine. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.